Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you and your generous gifts and financial contributions in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you into the world. If you don't already support us, you can do so by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you can click on one of our two friendly yellow buttons, or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and then send it to Post Office Box 13344, Grand Forks, North Dakota, zip code 58208. And thank you for your support. It's time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith. Monday, July 6th, 2015. We are going to literally be all over the map. It's not a standard format today. Just by the way, I want to let you know that. We're going to be using the DeLorean in hour number two. Thank you for tuning in. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Rosebro. I am your servant in Jesus Christ, and this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which, help you to think biblically, help you to think critically, help you slow down, stop, open up your Bible, and compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. No shortage of crazy things being said out there. We take the time to do the job of a Berean, if you would. And what I mean by that, if you're not familiar with that term, and sadly there are a lot of uh, Christians today who have no idea what you're talking about when you talk about, hey, you need to be a Berean. Yeah, you, you say something like that, and they're thinking, uh, but uh, bu- what? Uh, what's a Berean? You know, is that somebody who works at Starbucks? What's a Berean? And no, they, you know, a Berean is not somebody who works at Starbucks. A, a Berean is somebody who tests to see if what people are saying actually squares with what God's word says. And we get the idea of being a Berean from the book of Acts. If you have your Bible, you can flip on over to Acts chapter uh, 17. And uh, he, we're going to pick up. Um, it, at verse 10, and we uh, will note the fact that the Apostle Paul oftentimes uh, lived a very adventurous life. And what I mean by that is is that uh, preaching the gospel oftentimes <laughs> would result in negative results in the life of the Apostle Paul, and yet he never capitulated on the, on the message and never capitulated on the methods. He always understood what you know that what God's word teaches that men are born dead in sins and by nature you know they they're enemies of God. This is what Paul writes in his epistles. And as a result of that, he knew that the only way somebody be raised from the dead spiritually is through the preaching of the word. He would, you know, faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of Christ. That's what Paul writes in Romans uh, chapter 10. And so the idea is he would go into a town and he would proclaim Jesus as the Messiah. He'd do this in the synagogues. And if they wouldn't listen to him, he'd shake the dust off their feet and he'd go and preach to the Gentiles. 
And if they wouldn't listen to him, he'd shake the dust off his feet and move on to the next town. And sometimes they would send people to harass him as he would go from town to town. Guys from the previous town who didn't like his message would go and harass him. It was rather interesting. But uh, here's what it says, Acts chapter 17, verse 10. The brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. That's right. They had to slink out of town in the middle of the night. Uh, They were in Thessalonica. (laughs) Things didn't go well there. And uh, so they slinked out, and uh, and they they went to Berea. And when they arrived, they went into the Jewish synagogue. And now these Jews, the Berean Jews, they were of a more noble character than those in Thessalonica. Because when they received the word, they received it with eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. And so... Here's what scripture records for us is that, uh, you know, poor Paul and Silas, they had to skedaddle out of Thessalonica. They went to Berea and the Bereans, they listened intently to the message. Okay, Paul's saying here that Jesus is the Messiah. He was crucified. Ooh, okay, that seems like a strike against him, but we're going to check that with God's word. And uh, he rose again. Uh huh. Okay, so we're taking all this information down. And you're a what, Paul? You're an apostle. Okay, apostle. Yeah, I guess that sounds important. Sent by Jesus Himself. Okay, now we'll, we're going to check that against God's word. Mm-hmm. And it says that they were of a more noble character because they tested. So here's the idea. Nobody, nobody in Christianity, not even the Apostle Paul, gets a pass. Not Chris Rosebro, not the Apostle Paul, not the Apostle Peter. Nobody in Christianity, including Rick Warren, including, well, Brian Houston, Mark Driscoll, anybody who is a teacher in the church that's, that's a visible teacher who's saying that I'm coming and speaking to the words of God to you, nobody gets a pass. Nobody, nobody, not know how. In fact, I always say this, and I'll continue to reiterate, you never listen to fighting for the faith with an open mind. I don't want you to give me the benefit of the doubt. Nope, not even one. Instead, what I would like you to do is listen with an open Bible and see if what I'm saying squares with what God's Word says when we go and put it back in context. So I'm testing many of the messages of the most popular pastors, preachers, teachers, conference speakers, and folks like that, uh, those put forward by the evangelical industrial complexes, those whom we need to be listening to, to see if what they're saying squares with what, what God's Word does, uh, what it does say in context using sound biblical hermeneutics, and I have been trained in this, and uh, and of course, I'm capable of making a mistake and erring, so uh, you know, you get to double check me. You, 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 in fact, I do my work in such a way that you can te- you can check my work. You know, remember back in the day when you were in high school, and I know there are some people who are high school students, so work with me here. And you, you took algebra class, and you were given homework assignments, and the 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 uh, teacher would say, "All right, I want you to do all of the." Uh, you know, the questions in the back of chapter 7, uh, do all the odd ones, is what you know my teachers would say. Do all the odd ones, and they would say, show your work. You know, if you turned in your homework and all you had were the answers to the questions, yeah, my, <laughs> my algebra teachers wouldn't put up with that, not even for a moment. In fact, I had to show my work, so I had to write out the formula and solve for X and then, you know, and show how I did it and then put the answer, you know, with it. And so the answer was there as well as my work. The fighting for the faith is like that in this sense is that, 
you know, you get to test my work because you get to see me. Well, actually hear me, hear me, you know, present to you my work. Here's what the text says. Here's what I think it's saying. This is what it means. Notice this verb, this noun, you know, things like that. And, you know, and voila, blammo, you can check me and do that. Do it because it says in scripture, the Bereans were of a more noble character. So the idea is that this is a fact checking, if you would, debunking of bad theology and affirming of good theology. We don't just do bad theology here at Fighting for the Faith. In fact, you know, we have entire programs and entire segments dedicated to sound biblical exegetical presentations, lectures and sermons and things like that. So you get you get you get the whole spectrum, good, bad, ugly, easy, moderately difficult, more difficult, very hard to spot, something nuanced, things like that. We try to cover it all here at Fighting for the Faith in order to if you if you would train you in how to be a good listener with discernment to test the messages that are coming to you. Because it's not enough that Zondervan says, oh, this person's book is the book you need to buy. Yet, no, I remember Zondervan published McLaren's book, uh, Generous Orthodoxy. So, you know, Zondervan doesn't exactly come to me as, you know, anything they recommend. I don't sit there and go, oh, well, that's Zondervan. You know, I got to believe it. Or just because it's at Lifeway, your, your, your favorite Baptist bookstore. Yeah, I don't know if you've noticed this, but Lifeway has a tendency to sell <clears throat> books that are chock full of false doctrine. And so just because it's on sale at Lifeway doesn't mean you should consume it, you, that you should read it and believe that what you're being taught is God's word. No, not at all. So that's what Fighting for the Faith is about, and we're going to be doing some stuff today, kind of cleaning up some of the loose ends, if you would, uh, from our not extensive coverage. We've done a little bit of coverage uh, regarding Hillsong Conference, but uh, we're going to take a look at some loose ends as well as Take a listen to Glenn Beck. So let's talk about what we're going to do on today's episode of Fighting for the Faith, and I'll explain what hour number two is all about. We're going to begin with a Glenn Beck update. Glenn Beck, over the weekend, uh, presided over the Freedom Experience over at Fellowship Church in um, in Dallas-Fort Worth, Texas. And uh, the problem is that uh, he taught theology. Oh, yes, he did. Yeah, and it's not good theology at all. So we're going to cover some of the theological lowlights, because they're not really highlights, they're lowlights. And uh, we'll point out the fact that, you know, the Mormon theology was right there uh, (laughs) on the stage at uh, Fellowship Church. And some of the things he said just, I mean, yeah, it doesn't square with God's word at all. And uh, then we'll take a break. When we come back from the break, we might have to take a break partway through. That depends. Uh, we're going to tie up some loose ends. Uh, I want to play for you something that Driscoll said at Hillsong Conference. I didn't cover it last week because I wanted to do it as its own segment. He actually explained how his uh, resignation took place. And it's as a result of a direct revelation that he claimed that he received from God. And so I'll play the you know play the uh, relevant portion of Brian Houston interviewing uh, Mark Driscoll on that, and then we're going to review the first four and a half to five minutes. You know that's all we need of uh, of Rick Warren's actual conference lecture at Hillsong Conference, and talking about the importance of hearing God's voice. And by that he means receiving direct revelation from God. And we're going to fact check the biblical references that Rick Warren cites, or at least you know makes mention of, in the opening of his um, of his uh, conference lecture to see if what he's saying is actually what God's word teaches. Then, in hour number two, we are going to not do our normal 
sermon review. We're going to hop into our DeLorean. That's right, the Pirate Christian Radio DeLorean, uh, complete with the flux capacitor. And we're going to head back to the year 2006, to September 30th, 2006. And we're going to be listening uh, to, and for some of you this will be re-listening to, uh, we're going to be listening to Mark Driscoll's Desiring God conference lecture on the supremacy of Christ and the church in a postmodern world. And I want you to hear Mark Driscoll of times past, almost 10 years ago, uh, you know, back when he was at, I would say he was a rising star, rock star within the so-called Young, Restless, and Reformed, and just compare you know, the Mark Driscoll of 10 years ago, if you would, theologically, to the Mark Driscoll we we heard a Hillsong conference who has repented of criticizing Joel Osteen. So, um, yeah, that's going to be a fascinating thing. And by the way, that the, this, the idea of doing this the, it did not percolate in my mind. Uh, when I was at Reformation Montana, I got to know a, a, num, uh, a member of John MacArthur's staff at Grace to You named Cameron. And Cameron is the one who, who said, you know, Chris, this would be something that I think would be eye-opening. And uh, I, he sent me the link, and after listening to Driscoll's conference lecture at two, the 2006 Desiring God, I, I, must, uh, I must confess, I have come to agree that Cameron had a point. So that's how we're going to spend today's episode of Fighting for the Faith. I strongly recommend that you make yourself comfortable. And since we're doing a Glenn Beck Mormon update, that requires us to play this. I believe that the Lord God created the universe. I believe that he sent his only son to die for my sins. And I believe that ancient Jews built boats and sailed to America. I am a Mormon. And a Mormon just that's right. Mormonism does teach, if you've read the Book of Mormon, that ancient Jews did apparently build boats and sail to America. Yeah, yeah you've never read that in the Book of Mormon. You, Yeah, it, that is what they believe. And we'll be hearing a little bit more from the Broadway musical, uh, the Book of Mormon, as we progress with our uh, uh, Glenn Beck update. And like I said, he was at uh, Fellowship Church, Ed Young's church. And, well, uh, yeah, it, he ended up teaching theology. And so, uh, again, here are some of the lowlights of uh, Glenn Beck's appearance at Fellowship Church. Here we go. I want to thank uh, Ed for inviting me and thank you for your hospitality. Um, it is a real joy and honor to be with you, especially on this Independence Day. We are um, facing all kinds of trouble in our country and in the world. And we have talked about the soldiers that have protected this nation. Now, can I just point something out here? The job of a pastor is to preach the word. The the point of sermon time is for a pastor from the sacred desk, if you would, known as a pulpit, to open up the word of God and exegete it and proclaim Christ and uh, rightly handle the, the scriptures and preach God's law in order to convict us of our sin, preach the gospel to, you know, to comfort and assure us of the forgiveness of sins won by Christ on the cross. So this is sermon time at Fellowship Church, and the Mormon's on stage, and he gave quite a, a patriotic um, 
lecture complete with uh, ancient documents and books and things like that that he's collected over the years with his vast fortune that he's made on radio as well as on television. And uh, although it was fascinating and interesting, um, yeah, that's not the point of sermon time at church, is it? But I want to spend a few minutes talking to you about our responsibility now to protect this nation. We are the front line. We are the last line of defense. And if we fail, liberty will be lost. But the good news is I have been lost. The good news is Christ bled and died for our sins. And we need to repent and be forgiven, right? Lost in my own life before. I am somebody that in 1995 didn't have a friend in the world. No one would cross the street to shake my hand. No one should. I had lied to my family. I had lied to all of my friends. I had lied to myself for so long. I was a raging alcoholic, completely out of control. And I found myself literally down on my knees saying it's either life or death. I've had two suicides in my family. My mother committed suicide when I was 15. And that was the end for me. This is what we call personal testimony time. And yes, Mormons actually make this a very important part of their presentation of Mormonism. And I realized at that moment I was going to either fall in her footsteps or I was going to find a different way. And it was at that moment that I began my journey to find the saving grace of Jesus Christ that got me back up on my feet. Yeah, the problem is, is that he believes Jesus is the spirit brother of Lucifer, son of Elohim, uh, who lives on planet Kolob. Yeah, that's what Mormon doctrine teaches. Oh, and if I haven't mentioned this before, the law of eternal progression. Yeah, Elohim, the you know uh, our heavenly father, as Mormons put it, um, he was once a man. Yeah, he, he lived on a planet. He was created by his God. And uh, Elohim, by being obedient to his God and his God's precepts, uh, earned the right for himself to become a God himself. And he was given his own planet. And uh, he has multiple spirit wives that he and, you know, well, in this to say, he's, he's a busy man making spirit babies um, on planet Kolob with his um, many wives. And so uh, Jesus was one of his uh, children, as, as well as Lucifer. Yeah. And so he, you know, here's Glenn Beck saying, you know, he, that Jesus saved him. But the issue is, is that the Jesus that quote unquote saved um, Glenn Beck is a different Jesus than the biblical Jesus and the historical Jesus and the Jesus who truly is. You know, Jesus is God, the Son, second person of the Trinity. You know, begotten of His Father before all worlds, God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made. Yeah, being of one substance with the Father, completely different Jesus. So, yeah, he's using Christianese, you know, he's using the words Jesus and salvation and justification and stuff like that. But they mean different things than what the Bible means for those words to mean. And it is only through him that I am standing today. It is only through him that my family has been restored. And it is only through him that we will pull our family, our nation, out of the grasp and the jaws of hell and bring it back to a Christ-centered nation where we need to be. Uh-huh. Now, the folks there at Fellowship Church applauding loudly, giving him a hurrah and a huzzah for his... Uh, his uh, rip-roaring, inspirational, patriotic hoo-ha speech. But the issue is is that, yeah, what he means by these words is not what the, the Bible means by these. And now for another segment from the uh, Book of Mormon. I believe that God has a plan for all of 
current president of the church, Thomas Monson, speaks directly to God. I am a Mormon, and dang it, a Mormon just believes. Yeah, so a Mormon just believes. And yes, that's right. Mormonism teaches that uh, if you follow the precepts of Elohim, our Heavenly Father, uh, through the redemption, uh, the redemptive plan uh, concocted by Jesus Christ, that you too can have your own planet and be a god, just as Elohim is a god. That's right. As as God, as man is, God once was. As uh, God is, man can become. That's the law of eternal progression taught by Mormonism. I have a lot of stuff and very little time, and I want to just kind of go through because it's in, it's essential that we ask ourselves, who are we? Who are we? Because most people don't know. And what keeps us going? Most people, again, don't know. We came here for a reason. We are a covenant nation. We're the only ones besides the original state of Israel that made the covenant with God. Down on his knees after the first inaugural address, George Washington made a four-hour covenant with the Lord. We are violating that covenant now. Uh, what? George Washington made a, a, a four-hour covenant with... Uh, so uh, the United States and Israel, uh, the only two nations in all of history who struck a covenant with God, you know, because, you know, George Washington made a four-hour... What, what are the details of that covenant? Because when we look at the Mosaic covenant, uh, there's very specific things and uh, stipulations and you know, blessings and curses. So what was the covenant that George Washington exactly struck on our behalf with God during those four hours? I'm a little confused because, you know, Moses spent 40 days on top of Mount Sinai. How did George Washington pull it off in four hours? I'm a little confused there. We are the ones that are blowing it. The Lord is begging us, please, please. Turn your face back to me, and I will heal your land. Mm-hmm. And isn't it, again, strange because, you know, he's a Mormon. And, you know, Mormons, they just believe, you know. I believe that Satan has a hold of you. I believe that the Lord God has sent me here. And I believe that in 1978 God changed his mind about black people. Yeah, that whole thing in the book, in the in the Broadway musical, The Book of Mormon. Yeah, I don't know if you know this, but what happened, according to the way Mormonism teaches it, um, see, Lucifer got really upset because Jesus' plan of salvation was voted on and, and everybody ratified that in the Council of the Gods, as opposed to his plan. And as a result of it, he rebelled and he led a whole bunch of the other spirit children to rebel against Elohim. And um, according to Mormon doctrine, Lucifer was turned black. Mm-hmm. No joke. And uh, until 1978, black people were considered, you know, cursed. Mm-hmm. Talk about systemic racism. Yeah, that was all part of uh, Mormonism until, of course, the Mormon prophet in 1978 received a direct revelation from Elohim that uh, that he changed his mind about black people. Mm-hmm. That's what that was referencing there. So, how did George Washington do it? Yeah, how did he do it? 
George Washington knew we must be people of God. Mm -hmm. We cannot expect God to be on our side. We must be on the side of the Lord. And that happens through penitent faith in the real Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of our sins, right? The one who um, is God in human flesh, second person of the eternal trinity, that one. Um, Yeah, so notice here we're getting some works righteousness theology thrown into the mix. Oh, and by the way, Mormonism explicitly teaches that you're saved by grace through faith after everything you can do. Yeah, grace just kind of you know glosses over all of the imperfections. Um, yeah, of your you know, you get what I'm saying. The only way to do that, the original Purple Heart was not for a wounding. The Purple Heart that was Franklin Delano Roosevelt. He's the one who changed the Purple Heart. He brought it back. It has the figure of George Washington on it because he started it, and he would keep your name recorded. In the uh, Book of Merit, there are only three that we know of. Three Purple Hearts given by George Washington. He gave many, but they were all lost. They came with not only the Purple Heart that you could sew on your uniform, but also it came with a letter. This is one of the three in existence. Signed by George Washington. The Purple Heart was not called the Purple Heart. It was the badge of merit. It didn't require you getting shot. It required you getting caught doing something the Lord would be, a, would be proud of and approve of. Mm-hmm. Because he knew we will not defeat the most powerful army and navy in the history of the world without God behind us, without God leading us. Yeah, I, I don't think that uh, George Washington actually believed that um, God was once a man and lived on planet Kolob. Uh, so, again, it's a weird uh, historical referent, if you would, for me to be listening to a Mormon invoking the God of um, George Washington as if it's the same deity when there's like absolutely no reason to believe whatsoever we're even remotely talking about the same deity at all. All right, we're up on our first break. We'll continue this on the other side of the break. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkbackatfightingforthefaith.com or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash Christian. Follow me on Twitter, my name there, at Pirate Christian. Quick break when we come back. A uh, little bit more from Glenn Beck. We've got a Mark Driscoll update real quick. And then also a, a Rick Warren. We're going to do some Berean fact-checking. Stay tuned. Don't want to miss it. We'll be right back. No, no itching ears are scratched here. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. You're listening to Pirate Christian Radio. We'll be taking your false doctrine now.
presents Church Day Select. I do wish these planes would give us passengers more legroom. Hey, let me help you with your luggage. Oh, thank you so much. What in the world do you have in these bags? Bricks. Bricks? I'm a door-to-door brick salesperson. I'm not even going to ask. Ladies and gentlemen, the captain has turned on the fasten seatbelt sign. If you have not already done so, please stow your carry-on luggage underneath the seat in front of you or in an overhead bin. Please take your seat and fasten your seatbelts and make sure your seat back and tray tables are in their full upright and locked positions. Thank you. Thank you, Brittany. In case y'all don't know me, I'm Mark Driscoll, and I'm going to be your pilot for today. Oh, dear. He looks more like a terrorist, if you ask me. If any of you passengers feel at any time that you could pilot this plane better than me, then you'll be swiftly thrown under the bus. I mean plane. As you may have noticed, there are also no parachutes on this flight, which means, should you be thrown off the plane, that your landing will be unpleasant. We thank you for flying Mars Hill Air with us today. I guess it's time to take off, then. Well, let's just hope our flight to Boston will be nice and easy. Jersey anyway. That's it. God, please escort this man to the back of the plane for violent ejection. Hey, I have my rights. You can't do this to people. Oh, but I can. I can't believe that just happened. There's something seriously wrong with all of this. Uh, this is your captain speaking. Do not be alarmed. You are now free to move about the cabin and do as you please. Just whatever you do, don't question my actions or authority. So you're a brick salesperson, huh? Yep. But why on earth would you want to talk about something like that at a time like... Oh. Yeah. I'm thinking it's time that Mr. High and Mighty got relieved of his duties. It is now time for you all to buckle your seatbelts and hold on tight because we are about to start doing barrel rolls. He's going to do what? <laughs> Remember to always trust your pilots. I know what I'm doing. Oh, I do believe the ground is getting awfully close. This is Dr. Curtis Lyons. I am the presiding pastor of the American Association of Lutheran Churches. If you are seeking a church that believes that the Holy Bible is the inerrant, infallible Word of God 
and accepts the Lutheran confessions because they are the right interpretation of Holy Scripture. I hope that you will take a look at the AALC. Also, if you are considering a vocation as a Lutheran pastor, our seminary has a residency program and a program available online. This is Curtis Lyons inviting you to take a look at the AALC. Check us out at taalc.org or on Facebook at the American Association of Lutheran Churches. Hi, Chris Rosebro here to talk about our longtime featured advertiser, Cheapo Air. Doesn't matter if you're traveling for business reasons or for pleasure. Doesn't matter if you're traveling within the United States or abroad. Cheapo Air is the place for you to save literally hundreds of dollars on your airfare, hotel rooms, and rental cars. Visit our website, fightingforthefaith.com. On the side of our website, you'll see our ad banners. Look at the ad banner for Cheapo Air and look on it. There's a promo code. Write the promo code down. Down, click on the ad banner and then book your travel at the Cheapo Air website and you'll have the opportunity to enter that promo code for additional savings. Again, fightingforthefaith.com, write down the promo code, click on the ad banner and save money on your airfare, hotel rooms and rental cars today. Warning, listening to Fighting for the Faith could cause you to think that Mormons are members of a cult and that they're not Christians. And the reason for that is because they are members of a cult. Just a reminder, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you, your generous gifts, financial contributions, in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you and to the world. And you can partner with us by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you'll see our two friendly yellow buttons. One says donate. The other says join our crew. When you join our crew, you're signing up to automatically contribute $8.95 every month to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. That is a great way to support us. Of course, if you would like to specify the amount that you would like to contribute, you could do so by clicking on the donate button, or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith. Send it to Post Office Box 13344. Grand Forks, North Dakota, zip code 58208. And let me thank you for your support because we truly cannot do what we are doing here without it. And just a reminder, at the end of this month, it's almost here. It's the uh, Pirate 2015 Conference. It is going to be the exact polar opposite of the Hillsong Conference. (laughs) Yeah, poorly attended and not and that's kind of intentional the whole point of it is is that you know rather than having a big stage light productions and making it impossible you know and having security and make it a rock hunt no 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 come come hang out with us is uh, what we're saying is uh, come hang out with us we've got some great lectures we're going to be giving on good theological topics pertaining to our right standing before god and how we live that out before our neighbor corum deo corum mundo it's at uh, hope lutheran church in aurora colorado you can sign up at piratechristianradio.com and click on the conference link at the top of the page and uh, the idea here is this it's you know it's it's going to start at like 1 in the afternoon each of the days uh, 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 Wednesday, Thursday, the, the final days of uh, July, 
Uh, and uh, so that's the 29th and 30th. And, uh, you know, we'll go until somewhere you know, early in the evening, uh, about dinner time is how we're going to do this. And myself, Jeremy Rohde, Pastor Brian Wolfmuller, and uh, Jordan Cooper will be presenting different uh, uh, theological lectures pertaining to those topics. Good exegetical work, if you would. Very relevant if you're, you know, kind of wrestling with how do you put all of the Christian faith together when you haven't really been taught it all that well. This would be a great. We will be recording it. Uh, not sure if we're going to be able to release it for free or not. That's going to depend upon whether or not we break even. If we break even, then we will release it for free. If we don't, then we're going to have to charge a little bit of money to make up the deficit because we're not using this as a uh, as as a fundraiser, if you would. This is uh, our service to you, and you will have the ability to talk to me, corner Brian Wolfmuller, theologically grill Jordan Cooper, you know, and and just shake the hands of uh, Jeremy Rohde because he's just the nicest guy in the whole world. So we're really looking forward to you know coming uh, having you come and see us there and again it's only 49.95 to register looking forward to it and and if you're kind of sitting there waffling and thinking oh well i don't know i'm gonna make the decision at the last second don't worry you can even register at the door if you wanted to all right so let's continue we're working our way through part of uh, glenn beck's theological musings if you would from his appearance at fellowship church over the weekend and uh, we're t- he's now talking about merit, if you would. And uh, he's not talking about Christ crucified for the forgiveness of our sins, calling sinners to repent, be forgiven, bear fruit, and keeping repentance, you know, things like that. No, yeah, just pull yourself up by your bootstraps and be a, you know, do the good meritorious things that God wants you to do. All this coming from a man who doesn't even believe in the same God I believe in. So we must serve him. We must people be people of virtue and merit. We are a long way away from that as Americans. We- yeah, and that's only the, the fruit of the Spirit is only going to come through people who are regenerated. And Mormonism doesn't regenerate nobody. We will not save our nation unless all churches, not mixing our theology... Uh, you're doing that right now, Glenn. All churches come together, all people of God, the people who worship the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. We- yeah, that would exclude you, Glenn. You don't worship the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob already existed in the beginning of the time-space continuum, and he does not live on planet Kolob. We all stand together. We all help each other get better. And we become people of virtue and merit. Because God, I'm telling you, the Lord is coming. Yeah, and okay, so Christ is returning, so we need to repent and be forgiven, right? No, the, so he says the Lord's coming. So what should we do about that, Glenn? It is time to wake up and stand up. It's like me with my kids. My kids will yell and scream back at each other, and I'll tell them to go upstairs and get their teeth brushed, put on their pajamas, get ready. For bed, I'll be up in about 10 minutes, and I'll hear them screwing around upstairs. And I'll crawl up, and I'll say, I got, I'm coming up in a minute. You better have everything done. I'm coming up. When I get up there, I do not care who started it. I don't care if my daughter says my son has been doing something. I don't care. Did you do what I asked you to do? Yeah, so Jesus is coming, so you better clean up your act and just do, you know? 
Yeah, see, the problem is we're all sinful by nature, so that solution ain't going to work. He's our dad, and he's coming. He's on the stairs now. (laughs) And you're going to get it. You know, you'd better clean up your act. And I recommend we all have our teeth brushed and our PJs on, and we get our butts into bed and do what he told us to do. Yeah, works righteousness there. That's theology, folks. And the people there at Fellowship Church are just, oh, yeah, that's the best thing ever. That's applause line stuff right there. No, it isn't. That's get out and walk out of the building lest the, you know, the, the, the roof fall, on, you know, fall in on you kind of talk. Don't let anybody tell you we are not a Christian nation because we are absolutely a Christian nation. This is one of seven Bibles. Three or four of them are held by the Smithsonian. Yeah, so apparently uh, the United States is a Christian nation. Now, there are Christians in the United States, no doubt about it. Um, But saying that it is a Christian nation, yeah, um, even if it had 100% of the people who in the United States were believers, penitent believers in Jesus Christ, technically it would still be that's a secular state, you know, it would be a secular state run by Christians, but, and, uh, you know, the, but you understand what I'm saying? Yeah. When, um, those who actually believe the gospel make up a minority, what, 25, 26% of the population. What exactly is it that makes us a Christian nation? Why would a Christian nation, you know, have the Supreme court, you know, rule in favor of same sex marriage. I I'm very confused about this. Three are in private hands. So this is a Christian nation because of a Bible you're holding. Extraordinarily rare. It's called the Aiken Bible. This was the first thing Congress did when they started. We couldn't print the Bible. So when we first established ourselves and we won the war, the first act was to print the Aiken Bible. When it was given to George Washington, he wept. And he said, finally, a gift that is meaningful enough to give to the men that served by my side. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, that's a touching story and all, but just because the federal government printed a Bible doesn't make it a Christian nation. You know what I'm saying? Wow. We are a Christian nation. Define Christian in that sentence. And we need to start behaving like a Christian nation. If we really were a nation comprised of a majority of Christians, then the majority of people in this nation would behave like Christians. Because that's what Christians do. With love and respect and take the beam out of our own eye before looking at the speck in someone else's. We're losing memberships in our churches because stop talking about the things that the Bible tells us to do. Let's start doing them. Yeah, you mean like rebuking false teachers and putting false teachers out of the church, you know, stuff like that. Yeah, that's I, that's what you mean. So start doing what the Bible... I'm with you on that one, Glenn. Yeah, we need to start, you know, rebuking false teachers and those who teach heresy, like the Mormons. Here's a little bit more. He was a guy just like us. Talking about... Uh, that's he's. This is Abraham Lincoln now. Thinking, I'm not the guy. 
I can't do this. We were chosen before we were born. He knew us before we were born. He sent us here at this time for a reason. And he did you hear what he said? God knew us before we were born and God sent us here. From where? From planet Kolob. That's what he's referring to, folks. He has called and justified each and every one of us. You are the guy for this time. It just requires you to stand up. Uh huh. All right. So, yeah, a little bit of theology there from Glenn Beck. And here's our final thing from uh, the Book of Mormon. Yeah, that's right. Uh, Mormons believe that Garden of Eden is in Jackson County, Missouri, and that, you know, God has a planet named Kolob, and Jesus has his own planet, too, and you can have your own planet, too. Yeah. Um, Just demonstrating that uh, Glenn Beck did teach theology from the uh, stage there at uh, Fellowship Church. They did not hear what the Bible really teaches, and uh, they did get Mormon-laced theology from Glenn Beck, shock of shocks, which is all the more reason why you should never invite him to your church. If you would like to unite with him politically, that's a different thing altogether. But um, religiously hooking up with him like that and having him preach at your church... Utterly irresponsible and uh, rebuke-worthy because it's utterly blasphemous. You get the point. Moving along. Time for a Mark Driscoll update. This one's an interesting one, a little bit subtle, but you have to think about the implications of what Driscoll says in what I'm going to play for you. But uh, let's do this first. Church right down the street, don't hear God's word no more. The pastor says we don't feed no sheep, so get busy and amuse those goats. Don't be lazy, you hit to satisfy the leader's God given vision supreme. If you dare to question him, well, there'd certainly be a scene. Look out, another one's off the bus, another one's off the bus, and another one's off, and another one's off, another one's off the bus. Hey. He's going to get you to another one's off the bus. One by one, people disappeared, never to be seen again. I thought this whole darn thing was a joke, but I changed my mind when I saw the pastor jump on the bus, tear out screeching down the street. People were getting squashed like bugs and piled up like dead meat. Look out. Another one's off the bus. Another one's off the bus. And another one's off. And another one's off. Another one's off the bus. Hey, they don't care about you. Another one's off the bus. I am all about blessed subtraction. There, there is a pile of dead bodies behind the Mars Hill bus. <laughs> and by God's grace, it'll be a mountain by the time we're done. Um, you either get on the bus or you get run over by the bus. Those are the options. But the bus ain't going to stop. There's a few kind of people. There's people who get in the way of the bus. they got to get run over. 
There are people who want to take turns driving the bus. they got to get thrown off because <laughs> they want to go somewhere else. There, there is a pile of dead bodies behind the Mars Hill bus. <laughs> and by God's grace, it'll be a mountain by the time we're done. Um, you either get on the bus or you get run over by the bus. Those are the options. But the bus ain't going to stop. our uh, Mark Driscoll update music, another one's off the bus. And unfortunately, what you're going to be listening to here is yet another example of Mark Driscoll throwing somebody under the bus. It's subtle, but you just have to consider the implications of what it is that he's saying. Here is Mark Driscoll, a little bit more of his interview with Brian Houston at Hillsong Conference 2015. And, uh, And I'll point out the important stuff along the way, but here we go. Maybe it was too little, too too late when it came to apologising. Well, that's a good question. I, I don't know. Um, you know, I had someone in the middle of this. I wrote in my journal, so I wouldn't forget. He said, it's, uh, it's never the wrong time to do the right thing. And uh, yeah, I don't know if I'm in a place that I, I have a great answer for. I think I'm in the process of processing and praying and with wise counsel. Kind of revisiting 18 years of my life and, and trying to learn from it all. Yeah. So in your resignation letter, you you detailed a fair bit about mistakes you had made and, and offences that you had caused. And did you feel like that was received by people? I never got to say goodbye to the church and the people. Um, and so what went public was a it was actually the resignation letter that went to the legal governing board that was in authority over me. Um, and so, um, I, uh, I know under the circumstances that there wasn't a way to do that that, that would have been um, clean or easy. I don't have any criticism of the board. Uh, I think for the people, it, it meant there wasn't closure, and I didn't, we didn't get to say anything. And so, um, and we didn't expect to resign. I met with the board. There was a whole list of things that were charged by current former leaders and there was an internal governance struggle and, and threats of legal action and it, it got very complicated um, and a lot of that was anonymous through the internet so you don't know who is saying or doing what um, and so I invited the board to do a full examination interview anybody anything um, and we would submit to whatever verdict that they determined um, that when I think about eight weeks, we met Friday and Saturday, October 10th and 11th. I remember because the 11th was my birthday. And so Grace and I were present with the board, and they said, uh, we see in your history of leadership, uh, less in more recent years, but particularly in the past, pride, anger, and uh, domineering leadership style. That would be the, the three exact words they used. Um, we don't see anything disqualifying. These are areas we want you to grow 
We want you to return to leadership of the church soon. They wanted to do some cleanup internally. We want you back on January 4th in the pulpit, give you time to heal, things to cool down, and for some changes to be made. We agreed to that. Uh, I sent in a go-forward plan, and then we went home to have birthday cake with the kids. Um, I think it was on Monday night. I was in the bedroom. Grace was in the living room. And so we told the board and told the kids, you know, come back and resume preaching and try and love and serve and, and, and fix what was a, a struggling church. And, uh, and God had provided a way for us to do that as volunteers. And so our plan was to come back as volunteers. Um, and then uh, on that Monday night, I was in the bedroom. Grace was in the living room. And um, he spoke to me and he spoke to her in a supernatural way that neither of us anticipated or experienced. Okay, so now Mark has said that God spoke to him directly, and this is the part that I was telling you. This is the part where he literally takes the elders of Mars Hill, the Board of Accountability Advisors, and he's going to throw them under the bus using this direct revelation. Watch what happens. Um, and so Grace walked in, and she said, I feel like the Lord just spoke to me and said what we're supposed to do. And I was like, I feel like the Lord just spoke to me and said what we're supposed to do. It's not what we wanted. It's not what we had agreed to. It's not what we had planned for. And so I asked her, well, what did the Lord say to you? Because I didn't want to influence her. And she said that we're... Yeah. Yeah. So this is obviously uh, a, a difficult moment for Mark. So well, she said, well, what did he say to you? And I said, well, Lord revealed to me that, you know, uh, a trap has been set. There's, there's, there's no way for us to return to leadership. And I didn't know what that meant or what was going on at the time. And um, um, I said, he said, well, we're released and we need to resign. So... Yeah, so did you catch that? The Lord revealed to him that a trap had been set. In other words, all of the rigmarole that he went through with the um, the accountability board, board of account, you know, and his elders, um, all of that was they were deceitfully you know, manipulating the situ- uh, situation and not telling him the truth, and that they had set a trap and that he would never be able to return to leadership. And this is what the Lord told him. So in other words, he got inside information that uh, the, the board and the uh, accountability advisors for Mars Hill, that they all had it out for him and they weren't speaking the truth and that they were intentionally setting a trap. And by saying that, well, who's the bad guy in this situation? Well, the bad guy's not Mark Driscoll. Mark Driscoll's um, a victim. He's an innocent victim. I mean, he, this is a guy who is just trying to grow and mature in the right way so that he can return to leadership. But God revealed to him that a trap had been set, and it's those evil elders and the Board of Accountability Advisors who were the ones who were not acting in good faith, and they and their intentions were deceitful. Yeah, they were setting a trap. That's literally what Mark Driscoll is saying by basically claiming that he received a direct revelation from God. Moving along. Time for a Rick Warren update. I don't know how I know, but I'm going to find my purpose. I don't know where I'm going to look, but I'm 
before it's too late. All right. What we're going to be doing in this segment is we're going to be talking, actually listening to uh, Rick Warren at Hillsong Conference, talking about the importance of, well, hearing directly from God. And he, by that, he's not talking about receiving, you know, an open Bible or anything like that and reading what the Bible says. He means actually, you know, literally hearing the voice of God. And apparently it's wrong for you. I mean, you're, you're probably not even a Christian if you're not hearing from God. I wish I was making that up, but that's exactly how Rick Warren's going to argue this. Here's Rick Warren from the recently concluded uh, Hillsong 2015 conference to explain to you the importance of hearing from God. Here we go. It's an honor to be here with you. And really, I don't feel like preaching. I just feel like worshiping. As I walked around and looked at your faces, I thought, this is going to be like heaven. The most important factor in your future is not your background. It's not your race. It's not your education. It's not the opinions of other people or what your parents told you. The most important factor in your future is... Is repentant faith in Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. Because, you know, eternity is a long time and hell is really hot. And so... Penitent faith in Jesus is the most important factor for your future, right? Notice that he's, he claims to be you know, preaching or teaching about something that's like ultimately important regarding your future. What would that important thing be, Rick? Hearing from God. Yeah, so the most important factor for my future is hearing from God. What does God say about your life? Now, the theme of this conference, Hillsong 15... Speak, Lord. We're listening. And by that, uh, we mean, you know, direct revelation. Like Mark Driscoll got, where he just threw the elders and the Board of Accountability Advisors of Mars Hill Bus under the bus. Sorry, Mars Hill Church. (laughs) Slip of the tongue there. Mars Hill Church under the bus, you know, by saying that the Lord revealed to him, oh, that a trap had been set. That kind of revelation? So last night I just sat down and wrote out a few thoughts. And I want to talk to you this morning, and I actually want to invite Pastor Brian about halfway through this message to come up and share as we talk about hearing the voice of God. Now we're going to test what he's saying, because he's going to reference biblical text. We're going to test it Berean style, like I mentioned at the beginning of the program. We're going to actually open up God's Word. Nothing is more important in your life than you learning how to hear the voice of God and distinguish it from Satan's voice, other people's voice, and your own voice. Well, I know for a fact if I open up my Bible, I will hear the voice of God. If I want to hear it audibly, I just need to read it out loud. I I know that the Bible contains revelation, direct revelation from God. All scripture is God-breathed and is profitable for teaching, correcting, rebuking, training in righteousness so that the man of God may be equipped for every good work. This is uh, 2 Timothy chapter 3, okay? Nothing is more important than that. So it's a great theme. Now the Bible is full of examples of God speaking to people. 
Oh. Yes, it is full of examples of God speaking to people, yet nowhere in Scripture are we told, and I mean this, that we as Christians are to expect direct revelation from God the way Moses received it or the prophets received it. In fact, direct revelation was rare. And there were many periods, in uh, even in the Old Testament, you know, centuries, where hearing directly from God didn't happen. Yeah, it's it's that's even recorded in Scripture. Over and over and over. So what's the problem today? Does God have laryngitis? Uh, what what's the problem today? Is is it a problem that God is not speaking directly to people? Um, yeah. You see, I would just I'd just counterpoint that with Hebrews one, Hebrews one verses one and two, which says. Uh, long ago, at many times, and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he's spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed as the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. We have a definitive revelation from God regarding our salvation and everything we need to do the good works that God has called us to do in the written word of God. That would include Moses, the prophets, and the apostles. So, okay... He's got a sore throat. Why can't you hear God speak to you? Uh, I do. I just read my Bible every day. On a regular basis. And the answer is because we're not tuned in. Uh, what? The reason why I'm not hearing from God every day is because I'm not tuned in. So apparently God's broadcasting on some kind of pirate signal and... We're not picking it up. I think it's something akin to this. Hello, this is the Holy Spirit. Can you hear me? Am I coming? I think you need to tune your radio to KTOT. I think that's the frequency I'm broadcasting on. Can you, is anyone out there? Can you hear me? Yeah, so apparently God's broadcasting on some radio frequency, and according to Rick Warren, we're not tuning in. Mm-hmm. We continue. We're not tuned in. Yeah, where in this Bible does it say God's broadcasting and we have to quote-unquote tune in? What I want to do in this time this morning is a couple things. Quickly just share the best example I know in Scripture of how to hear the voice of God through Moses. All right, we're going to start with, uh, well, how do I put this? We're going to actually, we're going to fact check the biblical passages that you quote to see if you actually are quoting them in context and are saying what those things say. And then I want to invite Pastor Brian up, and I told him I was going to do this. And I want to just discuss with him, how do you test an impression? Because a lot of you can't figure it out. Yeah, probably because the Bible doesn't teach this. Now, the longer you walk with the Lord, I've walked with Jesus Christ for over 50 years. I know the voice of Jesus Christ. I know when he speaks to me. There's no doubt in my mind. Uh-huh. The Bible says that hearing God's voice and being able to distinguish it is important for three reasons. First, it proves you are a child of God. Jesus said, my... Whoa, whoa, whoa. Did you catch that? So hearing the voice of God proves that you're a child of God. Yeah, so 
How do you know you're a Christian? Oh, I received direct revelation. Apparently, he thinks that's what the Bible says. And he's going to quote Jesus from John 10, where Jesus says, My sheep hear my voice. Here we go. Hear my voice. The Bible tells us in the the book of John, chapter 8, verse 47, He who belongs to God hears God's voice. All right, so we're going to test two passages of Scripture, if you would. If you have your Bible, open up to the Gospel of John, chapter 10. The Gospel of John, chapter 10. And we're going to start at verse 1. John, chapter 10, verse 1. We're going to put it in context. Although, if you want the full context on this passage, you must start at John, chapter 9, verse 1. Because Jesus has healed a man born blind, and that poor guy has gone and literally been put on trial you know by the uh, jewish religious leaders for being healed by jesus you know a bad thing to happen to you apparently back in those days and uh, and so jesus has appeared to this guy and it, it's just a beautiful story i've taught it many times here at fighting for the faith but i'm not going to teach the whole thing here but we're going to pick up at the uh, tail end of uh, of john 9 uh, and uh, and kind of weave our way into John chapter 10 so you can kind of see what's going on here. And um, and so here's what it says. I'll start John 9, verse 38. He said, Lord, I believe, and he worshiped Jesus. So the blind man who's been healed by Jesus, Jesus has found him and asked him if he believes in the Son of Man, and, and he's revealed himself to him. And, and the guy says, I believe, and he worships Jesus. And Jesus says, for judgment I came into this world that those who do not see may see, and those who see may become blind. Some of the Pharisees uh, near him heard these things and said to him, are we also blind? Now notice the Pharisees are the false teachers. They're persecuting a man for being healed by God. Okay, he says, if you were blind, you would have no guilt. But now that you say we see, your guilt remains because they were saying he was sinful from birth because he was born blind. Actually, that's not the reason why uh, in this particular case. Yes, blindness is a result of the you know, our fallen sinful condition. But Jesus specifically said that that, was man, that man was born blind in order that the works and wonders of God may be revealed in his life. So Jesus then says this, Truly, truly, amen, amen, I say to you, he who does not enter the sheepfold by the door but climbs in by another way, that man is a thief and a robber. So Jesus is now comparing himself to the false teachers, the, Phar- the Pharisees. But he who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. To him the gatekeeper opens. The sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he has brought out all that he owns, he goes before them, and the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. A stranger they will not follow, but they will flee from him, for they do not know the voice of strangers. This figure of speech Jesus used with them, but they did not understand what he was saying to them. So the idea here is is that verse 6 makes it clear that Jesus is using a figure of speech. And Jesus is not saying that by the fact that the sheep hear his voice, that that somehow means that you're to, you, you, if you know you're a Christian because you're receiving direct revelation from Jesus. That's not what he's teaching there. We continue. So Jesus again said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to kill, to steal, and to destroy. Um, I came that they might have life and have it abundantly. And so the idea here is is that Jesus is using a parable, a figure of speech, and this, he is not saying, you will know you're a Christian because you hear my, my voice through direct revelation. 
Where do we go to find the words of Jesus today and to hear his voice? Answer, the apostolic record in the written word of God. So Rick Warren twisted John chapter 10. Now let's show you that he also uh, twisted John chapter 8. And remember he said that John chapter 8 verse 47 supposedly teaches that, uh, you know, the God is is going to speak directly to you. Uh, yet um, he that's not what's going on there. And it's rather fascinating when you take a look at the reference. In fact, have your Bible open for this one in particular. We'll add a little bit of context and uh, we'll start at uh, verse 42. Jesus said to them, If God were your father, you would love me, for I came from God. So he's having this little battle with the Jews, right? And he says, If God were your father, you would love me, for I came from God, and I am here. I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. Why do you not understand what I say? It's because you cannot bear to hear my word. You are of your father the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. But because I tell the truth, you do not believe me. Which one of you convicts me of sin? If I tell the truth, why do you not believe me? Whoever is of God hears the words of God. The reason why you do not hear them is that you are not of God. So, yeah, there we go. So was Jesus talking about the, uh, the, you know, the one who's of God hears the words of God? Was the reference there direct revelation from God? No, no, not at all. So you want, you want to know who hears the words of God? Those who are believers. Where do we go to find the words of God? Answer, the written word of God. So Rick Warren has now twisted two passages of Scripture, two, John 10 and John 8. What he does next is almost laughable. It's so bad, but watch where he goes next. Does not belong to God, does not hear it. Not only that, it protects you from mistakes. Job 33 talks about that. And not only that... Uh, Whoa, 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 whoa. So hearing direct revelation from God saves you from mistakes is what he just said. Job is an interesting book. It's a very interesting book. You should read it. It's I. It's 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 really amazing. Um, but uh, I, you need to know something about the book of Job, and that is is that quoting it needs to be done very carefully. And here's the reason why, is because you were, we all know the story. You know, the devil asked to basically test Job. Basically, said to God, the reason why Job loves you is because you've blessed him so much. So let me go ahead and put him into misery. And uh, he'll curse you, is what the devil basically said. God said, go for it, but you just can't kill him. And so Job loses his children, he loses his possessions, he loses his health. And all of this you know, happens so suddenly that, you know, that you know, literally the people in, that know Job think that he's experiencing punishment from God. And so Job has several, quote-unquote, comforters, okay, and they are trying to convince him that all of this calamity has befallen him because he has sinned. And so Job's comforters, uh, when they speak, they speak bad doctrine, terrible theology. They're dead wrong. And so if you have your Bible, you can open up to Job 33. And here's what the, you know, if you have the ESV, the, the heading there in the chapter reads, Elihu rebukes Job, or Elihu. Yeah, uh, so Elihu is, um, he's one of Job's comforters. 
the entire chapter is Elihu basically trying to convince um, Job that he's done something wrong. So um, we've got a real problem here, and that is is that uh, this text, you can't quote Job 33 and the words of Elihu as somehow teaching us that we need to receive direct revelation from God, because this is one of those passages that, uh, well, it just is chock full of bad theology on purpose. And of course, if you read Job in context, you'd know that. We continue. The key to productive life. Anything I have been able to accomplish in my life is by the grace of God and because I was able to discern what God was saying in that moment. Rick, I've objectively demonstrated time and again that when you open God's word, you twist it. You're doing it here at, your, at the Hillsong Conference. And so my question is, you claim to you know, hear these direct revelations from God, and God is guiding you and directing you, you, and, you and you hear the voice of God. All the, you've learned, you know what it sounds like. And my question for you is this. If you really are hearing from God, why haven't you tuned into the channel that God is broadcasting on where he says to you to stop twisting his word and to preach his word correctly? Hmm? Yeah, somebody claiming to receive direct revelation from God but who cannot rightly handle God's word, there's no reason to believe whatsoever that that person is actually hearing directly from God. I think it's more important than you to be able to say, Speak, Lord, I'm listening. Yeah, nothing more important than that. Well, actually, again, I will I'll now read the text from uh, 2 Timothy. 2 Timothy chapter 3. 2 Timothy chapter 3, ta- toward the end of the passage, it says this, verse 16. All Scripture is breathed out by God. That's right. You cannot open a single passage of the Bible and it not be inspired and inerrant. That's true. Now, in Job 33, it's bad theology, but if you read it in context, you know it is. You you see what I'm saying? So all scripture is breathed out by God, and it's profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be complete and equipped for every good work. I would disagree with Rick. The most important thing is not saying, speak, Lord, I'm listening. The most important thing to do, if you were to kind of put it in this sense, is in, you know, aside from the, you know, repent and believe, is to open up your Bible and understand that by reading the written word of God, you're reading the very oracles of God. God is speaking and still speak. God's word is living and active and sharper than any double-edged sword. As the psalmist said, your word, Lord, is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. The thing we need is not direct revelation. The thing we need is to believe and learn and study and master the revelation that God has given us in the written word of God. All right, we're up on our second break. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash Christian. Follow me on Twitter, my name there, at Christian. Quick break. When we come back, we're going to whirl up the Pirate Christian Radio's DeLorean time machine with a flux capacitor. 
And we're heading back to the year 2006, to a time when Driscoll was more openly reformed. Stay tuned, don't want to miss it. We'll be right back. The witching ears are scratched here. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. The Internet and the countless technologies around us, such as No itching ears are scratched here. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. Pirate Christian Radio Theater presents Death of a Salesman. Are ye a salesman? Why, yes, I am. Can I interest you in some... You're listening to Byron Christian Radio. The internet and the countless technologies around us, such as smartphones, tablets, PCs, cameras, video games, have become quintessential parts of our daily lives. In fact, our broadcast might be streaming on your phone right now. Communication and access to information has advanced faster than our ability to manage it responsibly. Texting and email are but two small examples of how technology has provided the means necessary to communicate over long distances, while at the same time giving people the ability to hide behind shadowy anonymity. By its very nature, technology is a double-edged sword. It provides the immediacy we desire and need, yet it also provides gateways for isolation from proper supervision. As adults, we can govern our own actions and submit to others for accountability. Or not. But how good are we at modeling or overseeing technology in the hands of children? Do our children have more knowledge about technology than we do? Do we choose to trust our children with such powerful tools without any oversight? Many people nowadays are aware of the dangers of the internet, such as cyberbullying, sexting, predators, stalking, trolling, video game addiction, pornography, etc., etc., but simple awareness is rarely met with measures of protection, appropriate oversight, or engaging communication. Typically, parents are trusting and simply managing from crisis to crisis because they don't know where to start or what to do in the first place. The Parentum was created as a centralized destination to provide parents information on the available security tools for all internet-connected devices. We provide educational instructions on how to protect families from technological immersion and information on a host of potential life-altering risks born from the dangerous elements of the internet. The Parent Dome's mission is to empower parents to be actively aware and engage stewards of technology for their children. Technology advances daily, and those seeking to exploit it with the intent to cause harm maintains that same pace. At the Parent Dome, we continually update our website in order to properly address the changing needs of parents and families to better defend them against predatory exploits. Please visit us at www.parentdome.com for further information. Thank you. All right, we're back. Our number two of Fighting for the Faith. Going to do a little time traveling here.
Normally, this is the time when we play the good, the bad, the ugly, but we're not going to do that today. We're going to actually whirl up the uh, Pirate Christian Radio Time Machine DeLorean with a flux capacitor. Yeah, sorry, guys. I'm not into the TARDIS. Um, and uh, let me uh, go ahead and uh, it, it get in, engage the time circuits here. We're going to be heading to September 30th. 2006. There we go. Let me hit the enter. There we go. We are ready to roll. And all we have to do is get the DeLorean up to 88 miles an hour. Hold on. Uh, put your seatbelts on. Here we go. plutonium again i'll have to take care of that later all right so the reason why i've traveled back to the year uh 2006 is because well there was a controversial thing that happened that year that was the year that uh well john piper of desiring god fame invited mark driscoll to speak to the folks at the desiring god conference and so what we're going to be doing today uh, at the uh, behest of a listener and a friend and a worker at uh, John MacArthur's uh, Grace to You Ministry, Cameron, is we're going to be listening to and reviewing, if you would, Mark Driscoll's Desiring God speech. And so without any further ado, let's get to it. And I'll, the reason why we're doing this, by the way, is we want to take a look at what's happened to Driscoll. Where, what did he sound like? You know, back in 2006 when he put himself forward as a reformed guy. You know, I mean, now he's, well, repented of critiquing Joel Osteen, strange, uh, claims to be receiving direct revelation from God. And that revelation through the elders and the uh, Board of Accountability Advisors of Mars Hill uh, Church under the bus. So, you know, what has happened to him? And I think it's kind of interesting. Let's take a look at him while he was still up and coming and rising and look at where he is now. So without any further ado, here is, uh, uh, well, John Piper to introduce Mark Driscoll, September 30th, 2006. Here we go. You've already heard that Mark Driscoll is uh, out of an Irish Catholic background, born again in 1989, married uh, Grace, and they have five children, one of whom, Gideon, is here, little teeny Gideon. Mark is one of the founding pastors of Mars Hill Church in Seattle, founded in 1996. He goes home to celebrate his 10th anniversary tomorrow. Also co-founder and president of Acts 29 Church Planting Network. He wrote The Radical Reformation, Reaching Out Without Selling Out, and Confessions of a Reformation Rev. Mark combines uh, the commitments of a historic reformed vision of God and God's work to save sinners with a robust view of manhood and womanhood that calls for the raising up of Christ-exalting men in the eldership of the church and uh, a vision for church planting and cultural connectedness that aims to rescue uh, sinners in Seattle from destruction. He has a way of communicating which pushes the limits of acceptable language and has been known from time to time to repent of 
of his sins in that regard, but probably not as often as people think he should have. <laughs> He's gotten me into more trouble by coming to this conference than anybody I've ever invited. Nevertheless, uh, for the sake of the sovereignty of God and for the sake of the supremacy of Christ and for the sake of the authority of the Bible and for the sake of the centrality of the cross and for the sake of the dangers of hell, I am very glad that I invited him and invite you to welcome him as well. Welcome. Uh, what a great honor it is to uh, join you all. Uh, my name is Mark Driscoll. I pastor Mars Hill Church in Seattle. I'm one of the elders there. Also run the Acts 29 Church Planning Network. We do have a booth here. Drop in and visit the boys if you're interested in planting a church. And also uh, theresurgence.com, which is an online missional theology cooperative. You're welcome to go there and get some free resources and materials. You're welcome to visit our booth as well. Uh, I will pray in just a moment. I appreciate you all coming out. Some of you may not know me. You may have Googled to find that I'm also known as the Antichrist. So I appreciate you coming out for this session to actually hear what I might have to contribute. So I should uh, open our time in prayer, and then we will get to work on the two subjects that Dr. Piper has assigned to me this afternoon. Uh, Father, we, we begin our time by acknowledging and celebrating that there is one God. And that, God, by grace, you have made yourself our God. And we want our time to be pleasing to you. We want our time to be profitable for us. For that to occur, it is my deepest desire that the person and the work of Jesus would be at the forefront of our hearts and minds. And that our time would be about him. For that to occur, we invite you, God the Holy Spirit, to convict us of sin. To save those who may not know you who are present to empower those who love you for kingdom service and to give us something of the heart and mind of Jesus that the peoples that we are called to minister to and the nations who are listening in would taste and see that he is good. We give our time to you, we give our churches to you, and I give myself to you in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, Dr. John Piper has asked me to speak of two things, the supremacy of Christ and the church in the postmodern world. And so all I have to do is talk about God and the church in an hour. Uh, and so you will get uh, two, two issues regarding Christology uh, insofar as the supremacy of Christ is concerned and two issues regarding missiology insofar as the church is concerned. So we will begin our discussion speaking about Jesus since that was the first topic which was assigned to me. And some of you may be so familiar with the story of Jesus. Let me just uh, tell it again so it might be fresh in your ears. We know that uh, Jesus Christ lived some 2,000 years ago and he was born in a dumpy rural hick town. We know that he was born to a teenage virgin mother, uh, two miracles, uh, virgin and also mother. And uh, we also know that Jesus lived a very simple life until he was about 30 years of age. He never traveled to a major city. He never wrote a book. He never held political office. He never made a great deal of money. He was a man who lived in relative obscurity insofar as we can guess, working with his adoptive father 
father, Joseph, likely swinging a hammer, working a blue-collar job. And we know that at about the age of 30, Jesus began his public ministry, which included teaching and preaching and healing and service. And we know that Jesus' ministry spanned a few short years, roughly three. Yet in his wake, out of the wake of this very simple humble, marginalized Galilean peasant uh, is a legacy that is absolutely astonishing that literally no one has impacted human history to the degree that this man Jesus Christ has. We, in fact, denote our history around his life, B.C., before Christ, and Odomini, the year of our Lord. And Jesus Christ is the most famous person in all of human history. More songs have been sung about him, more paintings have been painted of him, and more books have been written regarding him than anyone who has ever lived in the history of the world. And so the question remains to be answered. Who is this Jesus And he remains perennially hot today. Two of the top grossing movies in recent years include uh, The Passion of the Christ, which we adore, and The Da Vinci Code, which we disdain. And Jesus remains as culturally hot as ever. It is, in fact, amazing that Jesus is now the subject of pop culture. I will give you some examples. Uh, He routinely shows up in the television show The Simpsons. For those of you who have cable, uh, if you don't, repent, and and you will see that Jesus is on The Simpsons. And Jesus also shows up on South Park, often fighting Satan. And Jesus also shows up regularly in the comedic sketches of Carlos Mencia on Comedy Central. And Jesus also, a few years back, was on the very tame uh, magazine, Popular Mechanics. He was the cover story, and they were trying to discover the real face of Jesus. And we'll talk about that in a little bit. But they decided he wasn't a guy with product in his hair who wore a dress and looked like a girl, which I was very glad to find out, uh, because it's hard to worship a guy you can beat up. And um, additionally, we see uh, that even rappers like Kanye West still talk about Jesus. His uh, hit, Jesus Walks With Me, was a huge hit. And if you saw the Rolling Stone cover just a few short months back, it had Kanye West with a crown of thorns around his head. And the title was The Passion of Kanye West. I do not believe that he knows Jesus, but it's interesting, like people who are bipolar and want to one day become that which they envision to be the greatest, it's curious that for him the apex would be to be like Jesus. Uh, Jesus also appears on a hot air balloon that's uh, 110 feet tall and 750 pounds. Uh, Jesus also appears on a monster truck for redneck outreach, which... I know we want all people in heaven, but I'm not sure we want a lot of those people. But there is, there is a monster truck for Jesus. Uh, lots of people have Jesus tattoos. A buddy of mine runs the International Tattoo Convention, and he says that lots of people are still getting ultimate fighting Jesus tattoos all over their body. And uh, how many of you saw the film Talladega Nights, The Legend of Ricky Bobby? Okay, for both of you who did, you... Um, <laughs> Yeah, now it's clear here that, um, well, Driscoll is a guy who's studied his, uh, let's say, public speaking delivery methods. He's studied, literally studied, uh, the uh, comedic timing and lines of guys who are, well, um, 
how do I put this? The stand-up comics, you know, you know, Chris Rock and people like that. Clearly, he's spent a lot of time trying to study and mimic their delivery and their lines, and has picked up some uh, ideas from them and is using them. You heard him pray to the eight-pound, six-ounce baby Jesus in a golden fleece diaper, and he prayed to that baby Jesus, thanking him for his hot wife. And uh, he really likes to pray to the baby Jesus, and and that was very curious. And you may have uh, noticed as well that uh, that uh, Jesus is my homeboy just became an absolute pop cultural icon T-shirt that was worn by Pamela Anderson, that was worn by Madonna and Ben Affleck and Brad Pitt, and Jesus was and is hip and cool, even now appearing on fashion statement. Uh, T-shirts for the rich and famous celebrities. And, and, the, and the, the most curious thing is that the symbol that is associated with Jesus, the cross, has become the most legendary and famous symbol in all of human history. And I was watching the MTV Music Awards and noticed that old school rocker uh, Axl Rose was wearing a cross. And so was the rapper 50 Cent. That even the cross of Jesus Christ has become a very popular pop cultural icon. So my simple point is that Jesus is as hot as ever. And I assume that most of you didn't make it, but Madonna was on tour this last year. With her confessions tour, she should have confessed for having the tour. Nonetheless... um, on her confessions tour, which grossed almost $200 million at the conclusion of each show, uh, they would have a large disco cross, and she would be sort of uh, symbolically crucified before the crowd. And she ended her shows with a mock crucifixion. And so Jesus remains perennially hot in pop culture. The question then begs to be answered, speaking of this matter of Christology, what should the church have for its view of Jesus, and how should we articulate who Jesus was and is to this world that apparently is very curious about Jesus and feels free to include him in much of their pop cultural life? And you may have read the uh, cover story in uh, Christianity Today, uh, September 2006 issue this month. And the cover story was in large part on D.A. Carson and Tim Keller and Dr. Piper and C.J. Mahaney and Joshua Harris. And it it talked about this new upsurge of new Calvinism, uh, young, cool Calvinists. And uh, what it juxtaposed that movement of which I consider myself a part was also the emergent version of Jesus and their vision for theology and the church. And it juxtaposed to some degree these two competing ideologies that really are... uh, Uh, competing for the affection of young pastors, the next generation. Fascinating that he calls it both an ideology, young Calvinism is an ideology and a movement. That is part of the problem, by the way, folks. Calvinism is a theology. It's not an ideology. It's a theological system. It is not an ideology. And Calvinism technically should not be considered a movement. Yeah. So it's weird that, you know, he considers new Calvinism an ideology and a movement He's used both words for it, and he considers himself a leader in the movement with its ideology. Again, this, these are important words, and you know they, unfortunately, you know, kind of like hindsight's twenty twenty. We should have saw the problems back then, but we didn't. But yeah, it's interesting, kind of going back and picking some of this apart. Of church planners and theologians. And I would say that what 
distinguishes these two teams is this matter of Christology, their view of the person and work of Jesus. And so I want to speak about the incarnation and exaltation of Jesus Christ because the two hot theologies today, those that have uh, gone to the forefront, as it were, as the most popular, emergent and this new reformed theology. And by the way, I would say that emergent Christology wasn't their root. That was the fruit of the root of their bad presuppositions. It's their ideological, philosophical ideas that got in the way, which led to their view of Christ. ...are debating in large part over the issue of Jesus. And so I will speak to you about the incarnation and exaltation of Jesus. First, I will deal with the incarnation of Jesus, which is the popular view of Jesus among emerging and emergent type Christians. And what I mean by that is this, that when they think of Jesus, they think of him primarily as fully man. And as such, the humanity of Jesus is what is stressed. Uh, Additionally, it is the imminence of God here with us that is stressed. And furthermore, the places in the Bible that, that those who hold a primarily incarnational Christology in view of Jesus go are obviously the Gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and places like Philippians 2, where it speaks of the humility of Jesus, who humbled himself to come into human history, though he is eternal God, to identify with us and suffer and serve. Now, if you are an Orthodox Christian, you know that we must believe in the incarnation of Jesus. But we cannot only believe in the incarnation of Jesus. What is fueling the missional effort, what is fueling the discussion of the nature of Christian involvement in culture is a rediscovery of the incarnation of Jesus Christ. Jesus came into culture. Jesus entered into community with lost people. Entered into community. Yeah, I I think Driscoll was a communitarian long ago. Already by this time. Jesus identified with them in their culture. And so that that concept of the incarnational Christology, it is what is driving much of the conversation about Christ and culture. The problem, however, is that when we only see Christ in his incarnation, we are left with someone who is less than God. If that incarnational Christology is not complete. Is it possible that the emergent church and many people who bought into this view of missional theology were looking for a Jesus who, well, looked like them in their culture, thought like them in their cultural ideas? Yeah, I think this is a, a well, a formula for het, you know, for losing your orthodox moorings. And clearly we saw that play out in the emergent movement, but uh, we'll let Driscoll develop his thoughts along the lines here. The result is that the picture of, of some is that Jesus Christ is little more than a humble, marginalized, Galilean peasant with product in his hair who gets beat up a lot, wears a dress, cries, eats vegetables, and has a few friends. Right? And this is supposed to inspire us to change the world. Well, it simply cannot catalyze a movement. It can't inspire life transformation. 
because that Jesus is not big enough to be catalyze a movement. Christianity is not a movement. Be worshipped. He's not big enough to be feared. He's not big enough to be obeyed. He's not big enough to even be respected. Because he is in some ways a very effeminate, might I say even pseudo-homosexual Christ who never did take much responsibility. And that is the impression that is given of the extreme version of the incarnation of Jesus. And then men are told to be like that incarnation of Jesus, which explains the weak, an effeminate and cowardly nature of the church that has conversations and ignores commands from Jesus. That's a problem. That is an exceedingly harsh problem. Yeah, and it's not their Christology that was in the driver's seat. It was their theological assumptions regarding postmodern ideology, which they brought to the Bible. And so on the other side, the team of the new Calvinism is an emphasis not on the incarnation, but on the exaltation of Jesus. Consequently, it is not so much the humanity, but the divinity of Jesus Christ, which is stressed. Furthermore, it is not as much the imminence of God, but the transcendence and the sovereignty of God, which is stressed and emphasized. Those who love the incarnation of Jesus, but also know of the exaltation of Jesus, go to texts like Isaiah 6, where it says that Isaiah saw the Lord high and exalted, seated on the throne, the the train of his robe filling the temple, him being surrounded by the angels in glory, and they were calling out, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And we go to John chapter 12, verse 41, and John tells us that Isaiah saw Jesus. By the way, I don't think for a second that um, good Orthodox Calvinists ever believed that uh, their emphasis on the exaltation of Christ created a problem. I I think this is a, a false split and a false dichotomy that he's set up here because the Calvinists that I know, yeah, they, they never really had an overemphasis on the exaltation of Christ to where they lost his humanity. Never, I've never seen that. And spoke of his glory. That those of us who do also love the exaltation of Jesus Christ know that the same God that, that Isaiah saw before the incarnation of Jesus was none other than God the Son, the second member of the Trinity who came into human history as the Lord Jesus Christ. And what I would submit to you is that what is lacking is a rigorous combining of both Christologies, the incarnation and the exaltation, the humanity. Yeah, I would never combine a Christology or a Christology that combines the emergence idea of Christ and his humanity and his incarnational whatever with biblical Uh, theology regarding Christ. I would never combine those two, even the two emphases, the way he set it up, because the way the emergents were playing the incarnation card, um, yeah, they were practically denying the deity of Christ, so that I would never actually do that. But everybody who has Orthodox Christology recognizes that Christ is both God and man, and if you're a you know an Orthodox Lutheran, Orthodox Calvinist uh, theologian, you've studied the Christological errors of the uh, of church history, and you're neither Nestorian or Eutychian or or even Arian or 
uh, <clears throat> or buy into modalism. So the idea is orthodox Christology demands that you deal with Christ in his incarnation during his humble state as you know where he basically humbled himself and emptied himself of use of the divinity uh, and uh, you know at least in its full power and glory you get a glimpse of it on the Mount of Transfiguration but uh, and then after the uh, resurrection and ascension Christ is you know, it, exalted. He is sitting on the throne. He is live. He is reigning. Picture of Jesus after you know the uh, ascension is in the Gospel of John, and you know it's it's just absolutely you know mind-bogglingly you know amazing. But the thing is, is that what he's calling for here, I think there's a false split in his in his the way he's kind of set this up, and uh, and what is needed is not a combining of. You know, supposedly an overemphasis on Jesus's exalted divinity, and uh, you know, an overemphasis on Jesus's humanity vis-a-vis the emergent church's view of of incarnational, you know, theology, the you know their view of Jesus, and a combining of the two with both emphases. No, if you have a biblical Christology, you will walk the tightrope correctly regarding the deity and the humanity of Christ, and you won't confuse the two. You know what I'm saying? Humanity and divinity, the imminence and transcendence of Jesus Christ. And what we must avoid then is the theological error of reductionism. The vast majority of theological error is the result of reductionism. Yeah, I would agree, but I would not say that Calvinists as a whole have a reductionistic Christology where they only emphasize Christ's exaltation. Which means we are not saying something that is not biblical. We're just not saying everything that the Bible says on a particular subject. And when it comes to our Christology, I would say that there are some in the emergent camp who overemphasize the humanity and the incarnation of Jesus so that he is less than God. But there are likewise others within the Reformed tradition who overemphasize the exaltation and divinity of Jesus to the point where he doesn't really suffer, he isn't really tempted, we can't really identify with him. Who would that be? Who are these uh, reductionistic Calvinists? that uh, deny that Jesus actually suffered. I mean, names would help here. You're just painting with a broad brush. I'd like to know who you're talking about. Because he was essentially like Superman. That it looked like he was a regular guy, but underneath there was a red S on his chest. And he never really was tempted. He never really did suffer. It was all an illusion. The Bible tells us otherwise. And the way out of the theological woods on this matter is to read the Gospel of Luke and then the, uh, the sequel, the book of Acts. And what we see in the book of Luke is that Jesus was conceived by, led by, empowered by, enabled by, and resurrected by what? The power of the Holy Spirit. And then we read the book of Acts where the Lord Jesus... Uh, sends the Holy Spirit to be poured out on the church. And now we live the Spirit-filled life of Jesus. And so Jesus was tempted, and Jesus... Now we live the spirit-filled life of Jesus. Now, every time I've heard Driscoll talk this way, it has made me, well, uncomfortable. And the reason for it is quite simple, is that it doesn't quite sound right. Now, he doesn't fully develop the thought here, but it just makes me wonder if this view of the Holy Spirit that he has, although there's there's things that are, about it that are, well flat out right. 
it just makes me wonder if there if there's this nugget of something that's wrong in his um, pneumatology which helped lead him to where he is right now. Again, we're listening to him in 2006, and believe me when I tell you, he's going to take some false teachers to task in this uh, lecture. Um, And it makes you wonder, I mean, would he do it today? Because, I mean, he just repented of criticizing Joel Osteen and claimed that the Holy Spirit told him to, uh, you know, resign his post because the elders had set a trap, you know. Something screwy with his uh, view of the Holy Spirit. It just makes me wonder if this is part of what's going on here. You begin to hear hints of it in his uh, theology. It, again, it doesn't quite square uh, with my understanding of Scripture, and the words he's using seem a little bit foreign to me. But we continue. Jesus did suffer, and Jesus is one with whom we can identify as we suffer and as we live here on mission like him in culture. How do we get out of our live on mission in culture? Yeah, he's going to develop that thought, you know, on mission in culture. No, we live in the world. Our temptation. Well, we don't lean into our divinity. We depend upon the indwelling power of the Holy Spirit. I'm not saying in any way that Jesus in his incarnation ceased to be God. He was and is God in his incarnation. He did things that only God could do, like forgiving sin. But what I am saying is that the the draw toward the humanity and the incarnation of Jesus is having a Jesus that we can actually identify with so that we can follow in the life that he has patterned for us to follow. And the only way that life can be lived is through the power of God, the Holy Spirit, not of our own, but of his empowering and enabling, enabling grace in addition to his sovereign and saving grace. And so what I would subscribe to and I would encourage you is that if we hold the incarnation and exaltation of Jesus, we have everything that we need for a robust and biblical missional theology. It is in the incarnation of Jesus that we have our example. Missional theology. Man, I, that, those were the big buzzwords back in, uh, in the early part of the 21st century. Missional theology. Yeah, it just makes me think that the guys who concocted this missional theology, if they, if they hadn't really missed the boat on a few important things, which leads to a kind of a form of uh, relativism as far as methodology and ecclesiology. But we continue. Of humility, of how to suffer, of how to love our enemies, of how to overcome temptation. But it is through the death, burial, resurrection, and exaltation of Jesus that we have our authority to call all people everywhere to repent, to tell them that there is no God but Jesus, there is no way but Jesus, and there is no one but Jesus who is worthy of adoration and praise and worship and glory, and he is Lord, King, Judge, and Ruler, and it's all about him. And so what happens otherwise is if we only hold to the exaltation of Jesus, we become triumphal and arrogant jerks as we are on his mission because we don't act like he did during his incarnation. But if we only hold an incarnational Christology, we will love people and serve them and feed them and have community and suffer well and be tempted, but we will never call them to repentance because we will lack the authority of the exalted Christ who commands all men everywhere to repent. Yeah, the issue here is that the emergent folks who you're making reference to deny the authority of Scripture, and as a result of it, do not acknowledge the authority of Christ, even in the written word. 
uh, and they believe that they can just you know sit in conversation in community and ask the question, "What does this verse mean to you?" And how do you uh, how how what is how is this impacting your life? Kind of thing. You know, postmodernism has this weird you know kind of personal, if you would, uh, relativism. And so the issue is not that they've lost the authority of Christ. They've first and foremost lost the authority of, of the word through their postmodern deconstruction. Yeah, we continue. And so the key is to have both the humility of the example of Jesus in his incarnation and the authority of Jesus in his exalted state returned to glory. And on that, it is exceedingly important regarding Christology that we have a clear picture of Jesus in our mind that is more than a humble, marginalized Galilean peasant in a dress with feathered hair who got beat up while wearing sandals, driving a cabriolet, rocking out to pop teenage chick music, drinking decaf, talking about his feelings. We need to have a bigger Jesus than that guy. And so in addition to the Gospels, we must add for our Christology the book of Revelation. The book of Revelation is not about the rapture and the Antichrist and the beast and the false prophet and having a scanner on your head so the Antichrist can run you over the barcode at the supermarket. That's not what the book is about. It, It tells us at the beginning of Revelation that the book is the revelation of... Jesus Christ. The point of the book of Revelation is that it is a book of Christology. It's a book about Jesus. Like every book of the Bible, it is a book about Jesus. And so in addition to the Gospels, which give us our incarnational Christology, we also need to spend good amounts of time in Revelation looking at the exalted Christ, the exaltation of Jesus Christ. And the book breaks down into heavenly scenes and earthly scenes, and everybody fights about the earthly scenes, and the most important scenes are the heavenly scenes. And what is the piece of furniture that predominates the heavenly scenes in the book of Revelation? The throne. It's all about the throne. All worship, adoration, and praise goes to the throne. All authority, truth, and judgment comes from the throne. Over all peoples, tribes, nations, languages, tongues, cultures, sexualities, genders, perspectives... Tongues, cultures, sexualities, perspectives. That's a weird list. Just saying. That's the Lord Jesus in his exalted state. And he is the one who seats, who sits rather, on that throne. And so one of my favorite pictures of Jesus is not just in the Gospels, though I go there for my example. It is also going to Revelation 19 for my authority. And there we see Jesus Christ in all of his glory, where he has, and this will offend some of you, a tattoo down his leg. He is all tattooed up, and it says what? King of kings, Lord of lords. He is wearing what color? White. And what is he going to do? Declare war on those who do not repent of sin and trust in him. That is a Jesus with authority. That is a Jesus who rules and reigns over all nations and creation. That is the ultimate fighter, Jesus. I love that one. That's a guy I cannot beat up, and so I can sing songs to him without feeling moderately gay. I like that. And the fact that he's wearing white. I don't know about you. I grew up in the hood behind a strip club. My dad was a union drywaller. I was a bit of a a brawler. And anytime you show up for a fight and the other guy's wearing all white, he's pretty confident how that fight is going to go. (laughs) 
So on our Christology, I would argue for both the incarnation as our example and the exaltation of Jesus on his throne after his resurrection and ascension as our authority. Second point, our missiology. How does that inform our missiology? And there I will tell you that we must both contend for the exaltation of Jesus Christ and contextualize like the incarnation of Jesus Christ. That's why they both matter. I will start. So the incarnation of Jesus uh, becomes an example of how we need to contextualize in our services. Yeah, that's a weird, and I mean this, weird application of Christ's incarnation. Bizarre. Start first with the contending for the exaltation of Jesus Christ. King, Lord, God, Savior, truth teller, overall. I would take you to Jude chapter 3 where it tells us to contend. That will be my word. Contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. This is an absolute assault on postmodern perspectivism, pluralism, and relativism. There are not multiple faiths, multiple sound doctrines, multiple truths. There is one faith. Now it's fascinating that we hear him say that. Yes, there are not multiple sound doctrines, which I would basically quote uh, 2006 Mark Driscoll to 2015 Mark Driscoll and ask, if there's not multiple uh, sound doctrines, does Joel Osteen teach sound doctrine? Is he teaching the faith once delivered to the saints? that was delivered once for all the saints, regardless of their gender, regardless of whether or not they have more degrees than Fahrenheit, regardless of whether or not they went to college, regardless of whether or not they happen to be Sunni Muslim or Shiite Muslim. God commands all men everywhere to repent, and there is faith that was delivered once for all saints, and that is all. And that must be contended for. And I'm assuming that... There you go. Must be contended for. So he's going to do some contending for that and says it must be contended for. Why has he stopped contending for this faith once delivered to the saints? What happened to his theology? On this issue of missiology, the contending and the contextualizing, that in this room there is not a lot of resistance to the contending. I've read your blogs, and you are a vociferous bunch. Uh, you can, some of you are like drug dogs at the airport. You can smell an Arminian coming. I mean, (laughs) you, he's semi-Pelagian. It's unbelievable. (laughs) Right? And so I will argue for contending. And let me tell you nine issues that I believe we must contend for. Now, compare these nine issues to the Driscoll of today who has apologized to Joel Osteen for criticizing him. First is Scripture as truthful, inerrant, authoritative, meta-narrative. The first hill to die on is the Bible, the 66 books of the Old and New Testament. Yeah, now the word meta-narrative is just a little bit weird for me. I understand what he's talking about here, but, you know... It's one of these things, okay, so he's arguing for uh, an orthodox meta-narrative. New words, new concepts, new terms, all in light of post-modernity. And and who today is talking about, oh, we need to continue to hang on to that, uh, the the Bible's orthodox meta-narrative? 
not a lot of people talking this way because there's not a lot of people talking in you know about postmodern ideas and and word and language deconstruction and stuff like that. I mean, the emergents still deny that the Bible has a meta narrative and are totally changing it. But again, it's it's weird listening to this nine years later because you know people aren't debating postmodern ideas today the way they were back then. You know, a, a lot of the culture they're just postmodern. And they have no idea how they got there. They were kind of trained in it in the public schools and things like that. The postmodern rejects that there is an overarching meta narrative over all pe- peoples, times, cultures, places, perspectives, religions, and genders and sexualities that is an authority over it all. That is exactly what we believe the Bible is the meta narrative that's over everything and everybody. And that only by knowing the story of Scripture can we make any sense of our life, of human history, of God's intentions for us, of who He is, of what Jesus has done, of how to be saved from who we are and what we do. We know that apart from Scripture, we have no revelation from God. We are left in the fog of human speculation with no certainty, no passion, no clarity, and no Christ. But, now I'll go after you Calvinists. Let me submit to you. Weird way to put it. Now I'll go after you Calvinists. He didn't say we Calvinists. He said you Calvinists. So whatever his Calvinism is or was, um, it was he considered it distinctly different than the standard Calvinist of the day. I think that's what the pronouns reveal, don't you? What that means is a Bible preacher and teacher, you must tell your people the story of the Bible. And you must set every teaching in the context of the overarching meta-narrative of the Bible. Which means, and I'm not arguing against the five points of Calvinism, but the five points of Calvinism begin in Genesis 3. We need to begin where the Bible begins. We need to tell them that God exists in perfect Trinitarian love of, of glory and harmony and affection and communication. And that God made the heavens and the earth, and that God made us male and female in his image and likeness. And everything God did was very good. And then sin occurred, and the curse occurred, and everything has been marred and stained by sin. I do believe in total depravity. I also believe in creator and creation before total depravity. And then we know that the promises of Jesus are given. And then we know that the incarnation of Jesus... It's kind of weird to me. There's there's a sense in his tone where he's teaching these Calvinists. And and what I mean by that is is that, listen, you traditional Calvinists, this is how I'm interpreting what he's saying, you traditional Calvinists, you've totally missed the boat. I'm going to I'm going to school you on on what it is that you all have been missing in your Calvinism. I'm a new Calvinist and we we we've got this figured out way better than you old traditional Calvinist. That's what I'm hearing in his voice. Occurs and that he is tempted in every way as we are yet without sin so he can fully identify with us in his humanity. And that Jesus Christ goes to the cross, and that is the central issue in all of human history. And there, as a substitute, he dies in our place for our sins. Three days later, he rises, and he begins the process of redeeming creation, lifting the curse, making men and women back into relationship with him, as well as all things being reconciled to him. It begins the process of lifting the curse. I, I have some issues with some of his meta-narrative Hmm, I wonder what his eschatology is. We continue. The story goes on that the church then is God's beginning work on the earth for the inbreaking of his kingdom until we await the second coming of the Lord Jesus, 
who we see at the end of Revelation coming to judge the nations with a sword and coming to do violence against those who fail to repent of sin and trust in him. And that's the big story of the Bible. Now, when you go to 1 Thessalonians, you got to plug it into the big story. When you go to 1 Corinthians, when you go to Habakkuk, you got to plug it into the big story so they see how it all fits together. Sometimes when we look for a shortcut, we will go to systematic categories and we don't give them the story of the Bible. One of the ways you must argue for the meta narrative of the story of the scriptures as truthful, authoritative, and inerrant is not just to do systematic theology, that is fine, but also to continually tell them the story of the Bible so that they see that everything relates to that overarching authority of scripture. My second point, the sovereignty of God must be defended against open theism. As we contend, we must contend for the Bible and a God who is high and exalted, seated on a throne, ruling and reigning over all creation in authority. I won't belabor that point. I'm assuming that many of you are familiar with it. But the result of that is the overemphasis on the incarnation of Jesus and no desire to see the exaltation of Jesus upon his throne. Thirdly, we must now contend for the virgin birth of Jesus Christ. I know this sounds crazy. Welcome to America. Uh, I mean, we are a nation of theological wingnuts. I mean, it is unbelievable that now we have to defend the virgin birth of Jesus. Yeah, we've been having to defend that since the uh, modernist liberal movement and, you know, the folks uh, who, who were responsible for giving us men like Harry Emerson Fosdick. You know, that, I mean, this is a fight that we've been having since, what, the turn of the 20th century and before? Merry Christmas. And... And the reason is that in, and and I'm not going to, I don't know this man, but Rob Bell is one of the leading teachers in the emergent, emerging movement, along with Brian McLaren. He wrote a book called Velvet Elvis, in which the subtitle is Repainting the Christian Faith. And in it, he uses an illustration that many people see theology and doctrine like a large brick wall, and that there are bricks that are mortared together, like scripture and trinity and penal substitutionary atonement and heaven and hell and gender differentiation, and and that there's these bricks that build this wall of the faith once for all delivered unto the saints. And his contention is, you know what? You can pull a few bricks out and the wall doesn't fall down. And he says, for example, would we really lose anything if we took out the virgin birth of Jesus? Yeah, we'd lose Jesus. Again, noting 2006, Mark Driscoll didn't believe everybody played for Team Jesus, including Rob Bell. I went to public school and I could figure that out. I mean... I'm not sure my IQ is bigger than my waist, but I I think we need that. I was reading in Isaiah where it said that was important. (laughs) You know, and and he says, no, I do believe in it. I'm just not saying it. No, there's, there's the faith once for all delivered unto the saints, not to be added to, not to be subtracted from. Don't mess with Jesus' mother. I doubt he would take that kindly. The third thing, or fourth thing rather, we must (laughs) argue against is Pelagianism. Somebody say, that's a big word. Uh, So he's against Pelagianism here, and it's weird because one of the biggest Pelagians running around the landscape is Joel Osteen. Most of you know what it means is a denial of original sin and that we are by 
nature from conception sinful, like the psalmist says, wicked from our mother's womb. Some of you may not believe this until you have a child. (laughs) And then you will see. (laughs) Uh, They're evil. They're little, but they're evil. And, uh, And they would kill you if they had the size. They just lacked the ability. And when we... When we think of sin, what happens in the postmodern world is that sin is a systemic and institutional issue. Racism, classism, sexism, homophobia. It's not a personal issue. That I remain essentially still good. There's a book coming out in January. They approached uh, Doug Padgett and Karen Ward, who I think are still on the Emergent Village board with Brian McLaren. And then they picked uh, John Burke and Dan Kimball, who are evangelicals. And I'm like the token Calvinist. And... uh, And we each wrote on three issues, Trinity, Atonement, and Scripture. And then it's a counterpoint book where we critique one another, and then we're going to take this on the road and have debates in major cities around the country, at least what they're talking about at this point. I won't ruin it for you, but one of the uh, authors says that Pelagius was right and Augustine was wrong. Okay, a few Calvinists. You're like, all right. I see see a little drool right here. You're like, (laughs) you're like that dog looking for something to chew on. I know. So... Uh, um, the Council of Carthage denounced him as a heretic around the 5th century. And what you're looking at is people who have no respect for the Scriptures or the faith that was once for all entrusted to the saints. And you may ask yourself, why is that? Well, perhaps they're trying to begin a new religion. It happened in modernity with Jehovah's Witnesses and Mormons. And I assure you, there will be new religions out of postmodern pseudo-Christianity. And if they don't watch themselves, there are some who will end up forming a new religion, certainly having new kinds of Christians, (laughs) non-Christians. And that's a great line. I mean, what happened to this Driscoll? And repainting the Christian faith so that it is no longer the Christian faith. And so this issue of sin, we we must contend for the fact that we are sinners, elsewhile Jesus' death is in vain. Which leads to my fifth point. We must contend for penal substitutionary atonement. There's a debate on this. I don't know why. This is the best part of the whole book. Right? Now, there is no debate over Christus exemplar, Christ our example. Right? There are multiple issues that happened at the atonement. I understand that. Right, I believe, like Frame and Poitras say, we must have a multi-perspectival theology, avoid the sin of reductionism. If many things happen at the cross, and they did, then we must embrace them all, and we must take the full counsel of God's Word. But at the heart of the cross is penal substitutionary atonement. John uh, Stott and uh, J.I. Packer and Leon Morris all say that penal substitutionary atonement is the central issue around which all of the other aspects of the atonement hinge. And most of you know this, but it simply states that we are sinners and that God is against sinners. God doesn't just love us. He is angry with us. As Psalm 5 says, that he hates those who do evil, which we do. And that God's wrath burns against us. It's mentioned, I think, more than 600 times in your Bible. Uh, Sheer tonnage, it's likely more than the love of God is mentioned. And it is the doctrine that we are saved from God. We are saved from God. 
Not just a dissatisfied sex life and a low self-esteem and driving a subcompact when we feel like we deserve an SUV. We're saved from God and the wrath of God and the anger of God and the justice of God. I preached on this at Mars Hill. It took about an hour and a half. And I had a guy get up on the stage to try and fight me. Right? There are some who don't naturally incline themselves toward this doctrine. Right? And the Puritans say that the same sun that melts the ice hardens the clay. You preach, you preach and teach penal substitutionary atonement, some people's hearts will melt like ice, others will harden like clay. Our job is to preach, not to worry about the results. Okay? We leave the results with God. We sleep like Calvinists. That's what we do. I yelled, God's in charge, 99. That's how it goes. Yeah, interesting. Very interesting. I mean, this is quite a different Driscoll than the 2015 Driscoll. We continue. But what's at stake with penal substitutionary atonement is not a marginal issue about theology. What is at stake is nothing less than the gospel of Jesus Christ. 1 Corinthians 15, Paul says, What I received, I passed on to you, and it's of first importance. Most important thing in the world is that Jesus Christ did what? He died. That's historical fact. And then he gives the theological explanation for what? Our sins, according to Scripture. Back to the inerrancy and authority of Scripture as meta-narrative. Christ died for our sins. That includes my sins. Luther calls this the great exchange. If we lose this, we lose Christianity. We lose Jesus. We lose the forgiveness of sin. We lose eternal life. And we receive the just condemnation of an angry, just, righteous, glorious, holiest, good God. That's what's at stake. That must be, cannot be conceded, must be contended for. Some of you are here, and you may be cowards in the pulpit. Do not be. Do not be. What is at stake is nothing less than the glory of Jesus Christ and the eternal fate of those who hear you. And you will give an account. And if we lose this, we lose everything. It is shocking to me that some are saying, it's too violent. God feels about Sin that violently, that angrily, that, that disturbedly. And if we lose that, we lose the right to be horrified. We lose the right to seek justice. We lose the right to help the oppressed who are under tyranny. Because we will have lost the right to be as angry at sin as God is. And to do it in the name of compassion. What kind of sickening hypocrisy is that? There's nothing compassionate about denying the person and work of Jesus and his glorious substitutionary atonement on the cross. Some of you will say, but you can't grow a church. Yes, you can. I grew by 800 people in two weeks pre preaching on propitiation in, the, in one of the least church cities in America where all the kids are out front chain-smoking before they come in to get yelled at about God's boot is coming toward their head. They better repent today. Right? Just have a cool band and they'll come. It'll be fine. 
The other thing we must contend for is the exclusivity of Jesus. He is not just one of the greatest guys who's ever lived, like Mahatma Gandhi said. He is altogether different, as you have been told. He is superior to, distinct from everyone who has ever lived. And he is the only means by which salvation can be given. Again, some are arguing that there are salvific paths through other religions. There is eternal life apart from Jesus Christ. In the name of tolerance and diversity, we might send people to hell. That is very unkind. But I would much rather have people be offended now and blessed then than encouraged now and kindling forever. And, and, and we hear Jesus say, and he says, I am the way, the truth, the life, singular and exclusive. No one comes to the Father but by me. It's clear he died for that. And we must die on that hill. Right? We're told early on in Acts, one of, the, one of the great sermons at the beginning of the church, is that there is no other name but the name of Jesus through which we might be saved. If we lose the exclusivity of Jesus, we lose Jesus. Oprah says, one of the biggest mistakes that humans make is to believe that there is only one way. I don't know if you know this. Oprah's got the biggest cult in America. Right? How, deceived housewives by the millions. I, I call her Orpah, like that pagan chick in Ruth. Anyways. <laughs> she says, one of the biggest mistakes humans make is to believe that there is only one way. Actually, there are many diverse paths leading to what you call God. No, there's not. There's Jesus. That's all. If we lose that, we lose the Christian faith. We also must contend for gender. We're made what? Male and female. And that is very good. That's what Genesis says. That means that men and women are different. That means that we believe in the home. The man is to be the loving head like Christ. That means that in the church, male elders are to govern like 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1 declares. That means as well that we do not endorse homosexuality. That means as well that we do pray to God as Father with with the same trust as Jesus did. And we don't shy away and say, oh, that's patriarchal. No, that's the Father. We pray to Him. We like Him. And I don't know about your dad, if you change your dad's name... It doesn't go well for you. <laughs> Your dad likes to be called by his own name, not something that his snot-nosed brat who went to a conversation chose for him. And we must defend as well the doctrine of hell. I hear this all the time. People don't like hell. They're not supposed to. <laughs> what the... We tell you it's bad, so you want to go somewhere else. It's kind of the whole point of making it so bad. <laughs> if we made it sound nice, then people would go. That's, you know, I mean, it's insane. But now people are denying hell. I mean, unbelievable. Jesus speaks of hell more than anyone. More than anyone. Daniel 12, 2, those who arise will go to everlasting life or everlasting death. Nobody's arguing against eternal heaven. There's not a big movement saying, we don't think heaven's forever. <laughs> there's this big movement, hell is not forever. Well, if you're going to heaven forever or hell forever, forever is a long time and they seem to be the same. And to deny hell 
is unconscionable. Some people say, well, you don't, you don't want to just have a scare tactic. Hey, if it works, I'll take it. Whatever. I mean, there are people who have said, I'm going to go to hell. They say, you can't tell people they're going to hell because that'll make them feel bad. Well, they, they are bad. So they should feel bad about that. And then they should repent so bad things don't happen to them. I guess the case, that's the case I'm making. Right? I mean, this, this argument against hell is, is brought up by guys like Brian McLaren, who I know and I traveled with and I spoke with and I've had him in my home and personally I love him. But it's this exceeding pacifism that comes out of this hippie Galilean peasant who gets beat up and that's as big as our Jesus could be. And so to be a faithful Christian means you're, you're very effeminate and you get beat up and that's faithful Christianity. And the result is that God would never send anyone to hell and that Jesus would never have anything to do with it. And it's leaked even into guys like Chuck Smith Jr., who on the front page of the L.A. Times a few weeks back, it says that his father has removed him from the Calvary movement of churches, Chuck Smith Sr. has, in part because he no longer holds an orthodox view of hell, that it's all metaphor and folklore and myth and it's imagery, but it's not literal, eternal, conscious torment. And I'll tell you what. Everybody believes in hell. I don't know if you pay attention to marketing or advertisers. They've ripped us off. What they do is they sell someone a concept of hell. So if you're fat, there's fat hell. Right? If you're poor, there's poor hell. If you're unemployed, there's unemployment hell. If you're single, there's single hell. If you're not sexually active, there's sex hell. And then they give for you a savior to get you out of your hell. Take this diet plan. Log on to this website. Take this medication. Go to this seminar. That will be your functional savior to get you out of your hell. Everybody is running around trying to get out of their self-appointed hell through their functional false savior. And now the church is saying, we don't want to talk about hell. That's all anybody's talking about. Every marketer and advertiser is telling you there's a hell and there's a savior other than Jesus. And your life can be glorious and good if you just get your functional savior to get you out of your proverbial hell. That's the world we live in. Everybody's talking about hell and saviors. It's just pills and products and experiences and new clothes and cars and consumerism and self-esteem. We can't lose the doctrine of hell. And then lastly, my ninth thing that I think we must contend for. We must contend for scripture, sovereignty of God, virgin birth, sinful humanity, substitutionary atonement, exclusivity of Christ, male and female gender, literal hell, and that kingdom is in priority over culture. Culture is important because that's where lost people are. So we want to go there and bring them the love of Jesus. But kingdom is... Yeah, this is the point that I just, again, scratch my head. This is foreign to me. ...is more important than culture. It is more important than culture. And what we are seeing is what I would call an over-realized eschatology. If you listen to those who focus on the incarnational Jesus at the expense of the exaltational Jesus, they are speaking about nothing but kingdom, and kingdom and gospel are almost inseparable, and it has very little to do with the death, burial, resurrection of Jesus. And as they hold this over-realized eschatology, they are saying, let's not talk about heaven and hell, because that's an eternal thing. It's about now. And this is the result of the postmodern addiction with the present. The result is as well that there is now a movement... You will see it gaining steam that is saying that those passages that are talking about the end of the age and eternal things, meaning the end of the Jewish era, not the end of human history, and that we are now living in the kingdom. And this is an over-realized eschatology where this is the kingdom. And we come together in community and we love one another and we do good deeds and we make the kingdom of God on the earth. 
This is the same problem that the Corinthian church had with their over-realized eschatology. This is an old problem. That's why in the early chapters, Paul focuses so wholeheartedly on the cross because they missed it, just like many today. And then in chapter 15, he has the lengthy treatise on what? The resurrection. Why? Because they didn't want to talk about eternity and the resurrected state and heaven and hell because they had an over-realized eschatology thinking they were already in the kingdom. And what did the Corinthian church do as a result of missing the cross and the eternal resurrected state and having an over-realized eschatology? What did they get into? Homosexuality, sexual perversion, fornication, alcohol abuse, pagan syncretism. Does that sound familiar? Emerging, emergent, incarnational Christians are Corinthian with an over-realized eschatology, not focusing on the eternal resurrected state, believing that the kingdom is fully present here today, falling into the same sinful patterns as the Corinthians. But they are in large part overreacting to the under-realized eschatology of a previous generation of dispensational eschatology where the kingdom isn't here at all and it won't be until the king comes back. So we just sit around and read books and hope for the rapture uh, so we can get off of this trailer park and move on up to something better. Right? That's my shorthand for dispensational eschatology. You hear the theme songs for the Jeffersons and you're just moving on up and then you get to go to the kingdom. <laughs> now the problem with that is it's an underrealized eschatology. We don't think for a thousand generations. We don't build churches and ministries because there's this imminent expectation of the rapture and we're not thinking long term. That's an underrealized eschatology. That's the same problem that happened at the church at Thessalonica. They heard that Jesus was coming back. They sold all their stuff and just sat around on the lawn with SPF 20 on, hoping to see him 15, 20 minutes from now. And between this over-realized eschatology of the Corinthians and the under-realized eschatology of the Thessalonians, Paul has a tension of already and not yet that the kingdom was inaugurated through the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, but it won't be fully consummated until we see the king. And I'll be honest with you, I'm getting a little sick of talk about the kingdom when we're not saying much about the king. I guess that's my real problem. You know what the kingdom is? It's where the rule of the king is. You know what's more important than the kingdom? Having the right king. That's Jesus seated on a throne, high and exalted. His reign breaks in through the church and the preaching of the gospel. And there's an already not yet tension that those who hold an under-realized or over-realized eschatology miss. My first point is that we must contend for the exaltation of the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ as taught by Scripture. My second point, as I'm running out of time, is that we must also contextualize. I'm assuming that most of you at this point are with me. This is where perhaps we have the proverbial fork in the road. I'm assuming that many of you believe in both the incarnation and exaltation of Jesus, and you believe that we must contend for the faith that was once for all delivered unto the saints. And then once we have sound doctrine, we should use it. We must then contextualize it, communicate it to various people groups, cultures, and subcultures so that they can come to know Jesus as Lord God, Savior, and King. 1 Corinthians 9 speaks of this. Before I get there, let me say it this way. In the incarnation of Jesus, we see him as a missionary. 
Jesus Christ comes not as a general human being. He comes into a time, a place, speaks a language, eats certain food, participates in certain holidays, customs, wears certain clothes, incarnates into a culture. The incarnational Christology, as our example, is looking at Jesus in culture as a missionary as we are to be. Jesus said as much in John's gospel, which is the gospel of sending and missiology, where he says, as the Father sends me, so I send you. That's, that's a missionary command from the Lord Jesus. We look at how he did his mission, and then our mission work is like his mission work. And we do it all the time as we contextualize. We're- yeah, this is definitely where I'm, yeah, in some sense, yes, of course, we can't but contextualize because every preacher who's sent to a congregation to preach preaches in a culture, in a time, in a place, and uses language. But you know, the thing is, is that you know, consider you know, making pop culture the thing that's in the driver's seat is fraught, and I mean fraught with all kinds of problems especially here when it gets into the ecclesiology because, you know, this is the other part of Driscoll, is that Driscoll believes that ecclesiology changes in different cultures, which is not true. We continue. We're speaking English, not the languages of the Bible. We're using music. We're using media. We flew here in airplanes. We're wearing clothing. We're eating food that is all culturally contextualized, and we do it all, and we do it all, all the time. And we have no problem seeing that kind of missional movement go overseas. So someone goes to China, and they learn the language, and they eat the food, and they wear the clothes, and they assimilate into the culture to be a good missionary, to bring the love of Jesus, contextualized to the Chinese people. We have no problem. What I'm saying is, in addition to that, and I do believe in foreign missions, and we do fund it, and do church planning around the world, and I'm all for it, I also believe that missions not only is to happen around the world, but also across the street. And in this, the church must do more than evangelism. It must be missionary in its orientation. Because we have tribes, languages, nations, cultures, subcultures here. So what does a missionary look like to a, an urban hip-hop group in Philly where a buddy of mine's planting a church? What's it look like to an indie rock subculture in Seattle where I am at? What does a faithful incarnation of contended for doctrine look like practically where people gather in a culture that is maybe different than the sending culture and when the gospel goes from one culture to another culture, all of these issues arise about what is biblical, what is cultural, what is to be kept, what is to be rejected. This happens in the New Testament. That's where we get the epistles and they're trying to sort out in Galatians. How much of Judaism do we need to keep because it was you know, cultural and how much is biblical? Same thing in Corinthians. Well, how much of Corinthian culture can be assimilated to the church? How much is pagan and worldly and needs to be rejected? And this is the deb- Keep in mind, even though Jesus spoke the language and dressed like the Jews, the Jews put him to death. Debate today. I would take you to 1 Corinthians 9, and for the church, I would say, in addition to contending, we must also be contextualizing. Paul says it this way, To the Jews I became as a Jew to win the Jews. To those under the law, I became as one under the law, and though not myself being under the law, that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law, I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. To the weak, I became weak, that I might win the weak. I would like you all to hear this. I have become what? All. I know some of your Calvinists, you go, all doesn't mean all. It does here. <laughs> it does here. I have become all things to which people? All people. 
Do you, do you love all people? you love homosexuals? Just a question. That by what means? All means. One guy said that. The rest are resistant. I might save some. I do it all for the sake of the what? I do it all for the sake of the what? Do you care about the gospel? Do you really care? Do you really care about the gospel? Well, then you'll contextualize, won't you? You won't just contend for sound doctrine. Once you have sound doctrine, you'll contextualize it so that by all means, as many people as possible, cultures, subcultures would meet Jesus. Those who overemphasize contextualization are good at all things to all people at all means. Oops, we forgot the gospel. Those who tend to be... Which tends to be the majority of the people who are into contextualizing. More of the reform stream. We have the gospel. And it's a glorious light under an enormous bushel. That is our sin to be repented of. I say we, because that is my team. Some of you are now wondering, is this dangerous? It may require faith. (laughs) And I would submit to you two hands. Okay, let me get through this quickly. In one hand, we put timeless truth. Do I believe in timeless truth? I do. I do. I believe that God's the same. Yeah, but uh, that you did. I wouldn't say you believe in it anymore if if you're repenting and apologizing to Osteen. It makes me wonder if, you know, now nine years later, looking at what has happened to Mark Driscoll, if the overemphasis on contextualization and reaching all people and making, you know, his appeal as broad as possible has caused him to, uh, well, lose some of his timeless truth. Yesterday, today, forever. I believe that God does not change the truth. That would not be the truth. I believe in John's gospel more than 50 times. The truth is spoken of. And usually it's by Jesus who says, I tell you the what? Truth. I believe in truth. Some don't. Some don't. Again, Rob Bell says in his book, The Velvet Elvis, he says, the Bible is not first and foremost timeless truths. Really? So we can rape somebody? Because that was just for them. We can be mean to somebody. We can be racist, classist, sexist. Well, not that. We do believe that the Bible is timeless truth. Some of it was fulfilled in the Lord Jesus. So we don't have to offer goats anymore. And we don't have to offer lambs. We don't have to offer sacrifices. Because Jesus Christ has offered himself. And that's, that's settled. I believe in timeless truth. In the closed hand of non-negotiation. Contending. Fighting for sound doctrine. And and yet he's now apologized and repented for critiquing Joel Osteen. The open hand, a flexible, nice, winsome, creative contextualization, timely ministry. Those of you who are liberals, everything goes in this hand. Those of you who are fundamentalists, everything goes in this hand. Those of you who are good missionaries, you have two hands. Timeless truth, timely ministry. And you're anchored to the truth so you can be creative. 
Those who are created without being anchored to the truth, they drift into heresy. Now, some of you will be asking, what does this mean? Well, is he arguing for relativism? No, I'm arguing rather for relevant-ism. Not relativism, relevant-ism. So we say, where is this in the Bible? How many Gospels do we have? Four. Why? Because one is communicating in a way that is most relevant to Jews and to Romans and to Gentiles and to Greeks. Same story. Death, burial, resurrection, same Jesus. Contextualize in a way that is most relevant for varying people groups. The way the gospel is put together in the Bible is for not relativism, but relevantism. One of the things I love, not, not to be patronized, one of the things I love about Dr. Piper's new book is he's showing that all the books of the, all the gospels are saying the same thing. And they are saying them in slightly nuanced ways. Some will ask, are you arguing for seeker-sensitive? The nasty S-word. Nasty S word. I'm not arguing that you be seeker sensitive, but I am arguing that you be seeker sensible. Paul makes it clear that no one seeks for God. The way Christians are made is through the proclamation of Christ and him crucified for our sins by preaching law and gospel, sin and grace, repentance and the forgiveness of sins. The only seeker is Jesus who came to seek and save the lost. 1 Corinthians 14, unbeliever walks in, they need to understand what we're talking about. You get up and you say, now the vicarious substitutionary propitiatory, right? (laughs) The dude who does not know what you're talking about is an outsider. And he can't be convicted of his sin. And the thoughts of his heart can't be laid bare. And he can't exclaim, certainly God is among you. And he can't fall down on his knees and come to salvation with Jesus because he doesn't know what language we're using. If I might stretch the context, sometimes the foreign tongue that we speak is Latin and Greek and theological nomenclature. Am I against using theological nomenclature? No, I'm just saying explain it. Explain it to the person who doesn't have any clue what we're talking about so that you... I don't have any problem with that, and you're right. People need to be explained. They need to have it explained to them what these biblical words and concepts mean. You don't lose the word propitiation. You just explain it. You don't lose the word expiation or vicarious substitutionary atonement. You just explain the words in a way that they understand what it is you're talking about. Again, I did a series on the cross a year ago. We grew by, I mean, it was amazing, about a 1,000 in a couple weeks. And it took an hour and 15, hour and a half to explain just some aspects of the cross. Sometimes you're going to need to take your time, okay? Sometimes you're going to need to slow down and explain the deep truths of Scripture. I'm not arguing for relativism, but relevantism. I'm not arguing for seeker-sensitive. I'm arguing for seeker-sensible so that we would, by all means, do all that we can to reach as many as we can. Some of you then will ask, well, where is this in the Bible? I'll give you one example that I think is funny. You probably won't. Anyways, Paul's out on a missionary journey. Who's two of the great young guys he often takes with him? Timothy and Titus. They're going to various people groups, and the question arises, should they be circumcised? I know all you guys wanted to talk about this, so that's why I am. 
did they both get circumcised? No, they drew straws and Timothy lost. (laughs) And he wept bitterly. And Titus made fun of him. That's what it says. (laughs) No, actually what it says is because Timothy was going to go to people who really cared about circumcision, he needed to get circumcised. I think it's Acts 16. Because Titus was going to people who didn't check, apparently. I'm still not sure how that worked, you know? Are you a Jew? I I don't know how it works. You know there's going to be one thing in my session. So, uh, so because Titus is going to people who don't care about circumcision, does he need to get circumcised? No. Some of you would look at Paul and say, is he being a relativist? No, he's being relevant. Is he being seeker sensitive? No, he's being seeker sensible. I'm not saying that we in any way change the doctrines or we proclaim them with less certainty. I have security guards staged at the front of the stage, because when I preach, so many people want to get up literally and fight me. I've had guys on the stage. I mean, I know John Piper's all for martyrdom. I'm not. You know, I mean, I wear boots, and by the time a guy's head gets right there, I'm going Genesis 3, man. That's where I'm going, you know. I'm not talking about watering anything down, but being really clear, relevant, and let me say this. I'll close, I'll close with this then. First, to, uh, First Thessalonians 5. Reject that which is evil. Cling to which, that which is good. As your missionaries going into culture, there will be things you need to reject, things you need to receive, things you need to redeem. Okay? Are there th- Let's do sexuality, for example. Are there aspects of sexuality that as faithful Bible-believing Christians in culture, we just simply reject? Do we reject pornography, homosexuality, bestiality, bisexuality, swinging? Do we, do we reject that? Of course we do. Are there other things that we can receive that aren't sinful and could be adapted? Technology is an example, but sexually we could receive the fact that it is a gift given of God and it's a good thing. But then thirdly, there are things that must be redeemed. So on the issue of sex, we must redeem sex for our people, right? Marriage bed is to be kept pure, Hebrews says. I'm teaching a class actually starting Tuesday night for some married couples going through the Song of Solomon, saying, you know what? Some of you have just rejected sex when you became a Christian, and you're not sure if it's pleasing to God or it's a gift of God. Let's receive it as a gift of God, but let's redeem it so that your past of fornication and homosexuality and bisexuality and pornography and sexual addiction is not how your sexuality is governed, but Scripture and the work of Jesus on the cross makes all things good and new. Let's work out of Scripture. There are things in culture we must reject. Those who are emergent stream, they don't get that. There are things we must receive. Use of technology being an example. And there are things that we can redeem. They were originally good, but they're marred by sin, and they need to be brought back into the purposes that God intended them for creation. In closing, and I know that I am over, and I appreciate your kindness, some of you will ask, but is this a new wind of doctrine? Is this a new wave of doctrine? Is just this the lightest, newest, hippest, bad? Yes, dear friends, we are on the cutting edge of the 16th century. Yeah, again, I, I have to kind of point out that something has gone wrong with Driscoll to the point where what he was saying, you know, in 2006, 
Doesn't sound like his theology today. Did his relative relevantism have something to play with that or play into it? How about his uh, view that he was receiving direct revelation from God? How did that play into it? I think there's something to be said here. We continue. We are riding that 16th century Genevan cutting edge. We are right there. One thing that many people do not know is that John Calvin was not just a contender. He was a contextualizer. We must rediscover what it means to be a true Calvinist. We do not know a lot about his missiology because the people that he trained to do missionary work were under persecution, so a lot of records weren't kept because if they were found, those people would be put to death. And so it was a safety issue. But when persecution happened, you know that the city of Geneva's populace doubled as people fled to be under the teaching of John Calvin. And in the book, uh, Light for the City, which is an interesting read on the missiological love of John Calvin for the transformation of a whole city, for the transformation of the whole world, he says that as people flocked there under persecution and the population doubled, that he then trained them and sent them out as missionaries to contend and contextualize, to contend for the exaltation of Jesus, to contextualize like the incarnation of Jesus. The result being that in 1555, there were five underground Protestant churches in France. Seven years later, there were 2,150. There were three million Christians in France. And some of them had megachurches ranging between four and 9,000 people. If you are a true Calvinist, you are not just a contender, you're a contextualizer. You don't just care about your church. You care about the whole world. You care about planting churches so that others might taste and see that the Lord is good. And you're not against mega churches as long as they're good churches. John Calvin was not just a contender. He was a contextualizer. From five churches to 2,150 churches, from a handful of people to three million people, in seven years. Say, how could that possibly happen? The gospel is the power of God. We must contend for it. And then we must contextualize it because we get to. That's Jesus' gift to us. I'll pray. Thanks for your time. Lord Jesus, We remember your incarnation in humility. Jesus, may we go into our cities, may we go into our world with your humility to love the marginalized, the poor, the weak, the outcast, to serve. Lord Jesus, may we come into culture as you did in your incarnation. May your Holy Spirit teach us what to receive, what to reject, what to redeem. May we know what to put in the closed hand of timeless truth and what to leave in the open hand of timely ministry. Jesus, as we go, I pray you would inflame my brothers and sisters with the confidence of your exaltation, that if we were to see you today, we would not see a humble, marginalized Galilean peasant. We would see King of kings, Lord of lords, high and exalted, seated on the throne, coming to make war against the nations, to usher in the kingdom of peace through the victory of the Prince of Peace. 
I pray that we would come, Lord Jesus, by the power of your spirit as you did, with the truth of the gospel as you did, that we would herald the coming of our King. And Lord Jesus, I pray that we would contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. And I pray once it has been contended for, that it would be contextualized so that by all means, as many people as possible would be one. I pray we would not be Calvinist in doctrine only, but also in deed, that we would not just follow the teachings of Calvin, but his example, who did not just follow the teachings of Paul, but his example, who did not follow just the teachings of Jesus, but his example. We ask for this in his good name. Amen. All right. So there was Driscoll's September 30th, 2006 uh, presentation at the Desiring God conference. What What's happened? Things that he was talking about in the closed hand, you know, that you have to contend for, he, he no longer contends for. Is it because of relevantism? Is it because of his belief that he's receiving direct revelation from God? Combination of both. What happened to Driscoll? You know, this is uh, something for us to consider, to think about, to ponder about, and maybe even discuss. But clearly something has gone terribly wrong to the point where Driscoll now has taken things that are, he would clearly, to, in 2006, were, say were in the closed hand, and he's removed them from the closed hand. And he's drifted. What is at the heart of it? Something. Something went terribly, terribly wrong. And my prayer for Driscoll is that he repents. He repents of repenting for critiquing Osteen. Because Osteen is a man who does not teach the historic Orthodox Christian faith, the faith once delivered to the saints. He doesn't. Uh, Dris, uh, you know, uh, Osteen is a Pelagian. Osteen is a man who teaches the prosperity heresy. Uh, Ho- Osteen is a man who teaches the members in you know at Lakewood and others who read his books to stand in the mirror and say how awesome they are. I'm the head and not the tail. I am strong and I am wealthy and I am healthy and all this kind of nonsense. How could Driscoll literally end up where he is at right now? Because something was not bolted down in his theology and it caused his theology to drift. Relevantism, direct revelation, combination of both. What do you think? I'd love to get your feedback. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkbackatfightingforthefaith.com or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. Follow me on Twitter. My name there, at pirate Christian. Until tomorrow, may God richly bless you in the grace and mercy won by Jesus Christ, by carious death on the cross for all of your sins. Amen.